Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this interview, I had the privilege of chatting with Taylor Story. In a nearly three-hour interview, we covered quite a lot of ground, so I want to first of all point you to timestamps in the show notes for easy reference. But I also want to take a few minutes here to lay out what I think are some important concepts to listen out for throughout the episode. First, much of what we discuss is going to center around true prophets and false prophets, which, if you've listened to this season, is a really common theme. We are especially going to ask whether rotten fruit is an independent occurrence or a systemic one. Is there a worm in one apple, or is the whole tree bad? Now that's a question we grapple a lot with throughout the season, and one which you can find prominently in my interview with Drew Johnson, as well as the episode on eudaemonism. So go check out those episodes if this theme interests you. Another theme we get into is related to the ideal. Now Taylor and I are going to argue that holding onto an ideal isn't idealistic, but rather it's what drives us to true, right action. To throw off the ideal in compromise is what tends to lead to injustices and great evils. While embracing consequentialism might seem to produce better results, better fruit in the short term, it actually creates destruction and rotten fruit in the long run. Finally, we touch on quite a lot of historical events. We get into Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Moody, Reagan, Machen, Nicaragua, and the Contras, and a lot more. Many of these topics and are discussed throughout the season in episodes like our one on Haiti or on media conspiracies with Gary Webb. While our focus in this episode was mostly on Christianity and Christendom, because we live in the West, that means that our history is saturated with Christian influence. If you haven't listened to the rest of the season, I highly recommend you at least go back and search for some of the episodes this interview touches on. Okay. Enough of me talking now, because you're about to enter a pretty hefty episode, and one which I hope you'll enjoy. So here it is, my interview with Taylor Story. I think you were actually the first person that I interviewed uh, for for the podcast uh, a while back, and it was pretty messy. It didn't go too well, uh, because I had to like splice some things and everything, but uh, hopefully I'm a lot better at this thing now, and and things will go well. Um, But... I uh, I wanted to ask you here today because you have a lot of expertise and and uh, um, you've delved a lot into existentialism and uh, evangelicalism, and so I want to kind of uh, ask you a bunch of questions and and let you talk about that. But before you do, I kind of want to set the stage a little bit um, with with something that I think is is interesting. It's actually. Um, I was reading this guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, and I'm going to say his name wrong because it's French, but Gustave Le Bon. I don't know if you've no, heard of him. No, don't know him. Okay. He wrote, uh, he wrote a book. His, his famous mm-hmm. book is called The Crowd, but he also, he also wrote one on like the psychology of revolution. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really interesting because when, when he was talking about the Reformation, um, he mentioned something that I think is going to be pertinent tonight. He talked about how, um, from his perspective, and he's, he's, a post-revolutionary Catholic guy, I think, or atheist writing in France. But he said, look, the Reformation is just like part of this crowd psychology. And essentially what they did is, okay, you had a bunch of people who maybe really were convicted, like Luther, about certain ideas. 
But what you ended up having is it, it gained a lot of momentum because you had people like princes who co-opted uh, this movement because they were self-interested parties. And what the princes got from it was they got power away from the church. They wrested power from the church. And then they were actually able to swoop in to the Catholic churches and take all that wealth that, uh, that the Catholics had. And it was interesting because, you know, I'd read some, some other works on Luther and Zwingli. And what was interesting to me was, you know, they ended up persecuting these, these Anabaptists, these people from, uh, they were called the radical reformers who were like, Hey, look, your reformation isn't good. Like we need to go further because government is bad. And Luther and Zwingli, Zwingli was on board with that. He was basically like an Anabaptist. But when he saw the tides turning and the princes kind of getting involved, you know, the princes saved Luther and Zwingli's like, uh, I better get out of this, this radical reformation. And so he ended up actually swinging and killing the very people who, who he was once a part of. Uh, he was, he was a pretty big jerk. Uh, you know, he said, I'm going to give him a third baptism because, because oh. uh, the reformers, they baptize their infants and you have the radical reformers who, who baptized as adults. And then he's like, okay, we're going to drown them. Like we'll give them, we'll execute them by drowning and give them a third baptism. Um, so anyway, you have people like, like Zwingli and, and, and uh, others who are basically turning to the state um, because it gives them power. It gives them safety. And so I'm part of, uh, part of a reformed denomination. We use the Westminster Confession of Faith. Are you familiar at all with that? Uh, yeah, I actually did the Westminster Catechism way, way back in the day. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, our church, our church is, um, you know, that's that's a pretty revered uh, document. What was really interesting to me was um, when I discovered that, well, we actually don't have the original Westminster Confession, but there were some amendments made, and mm. there weren't all that many made, but there were some some pretty big ones. All right, one of them was on the civil magistrate uh, in section twenty three, and in the civil magistrate, they used to say. Hey, the civil magistrate needs to protect the church, the, the peace and purity of the church, and they can call synods and all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? They changed that. You know when they changed it? Do you have any guess at all? No, no. I looked over the notes, but uh, <laughs> well, I, but I just no. added this. Yeah, yeah. They oh, okay. they they changed that section in 1789 in so the United States in 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 America, right? So oh, they, wow. they took that out and they said, no, 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 uh, the, the king can't do that. No longer should they persecute people who don't believe, right? So the original Westminster is like, no, they have this power. And then and it's, this, it's this very serious document that you don't change much at mm -hmm. all. But then mm -hmm. in 1789, right, God moved and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. uh, they changed it to align with, with whatever the government of their day was. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there are a number of, of these other examples, but I thought, you know, Laban pointing out the, Re the Reformation and, and uh, the changes in the catechism are going to be a good backdrop for what I want to talk to you about today, because we're going to start by talking about uh, Kierkegaard, who is somebody who recognized how uh, people of his day in the 1800s, like, you know, halfway from the, the Reformation to now, how they were kind of in bed with the state. And how you have this mm -hmm. this stream of Christianity that uh, that is just 
continuing to capitulate to the state. So I want to talk about that uh, today. Mm -hmm. Before we do, if you just want to give yourself an introduction, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, Yeah, so I um, was homeschooled K through 12, went to Cedarville University. That's how I know you. I did my first two years there. And then worked at some like Calvary Chapel churches, also a Presbyterian church. Um, went to seminary for a little bit at Western Seminary and uh, dropped out. Then went to Jerusalem and studied kind of like a more historical approach to the Bible. Um, just did one semester, but it really changed my life. And then and then did a bunch of international things. I taught in China for a year and um, worked in humanitarian aid and then uh um fell into installing solar and wanted to go back to school so i went back to school in germany uh, in potsdam which is like right outside berlin i took classes at humboldt zu berlin and one night i was having beers uh and i walked outside the bar and i saw a plaque that said this is where soren kierkegaard lived and i was like what Soren Kierkegaard lived here and I and then I did a bunch of research and found out that he spent about the same amount of time three years studying in Berlin I think on two different occasions um and yeah and then I think I had a similar process with Christianity that I was raised in the fundamentalist side of things and was a little bit disillusioned with that um especially as a result of studying historical um Bible stuff, um, what's called historical criticism in the academic fields, um, but is what I kind of studied in Jerusalem. And um, and I just didn't see it kind of lining up. I didn't see it being good news. And so I thought I was going to distance myself, but actually Kierkegaard kind of brought me back. Um, a lot of things brought me back when I was in Berlin, but um, Kierkegaard's uh, training in Christianity might be, might be the single thing that helped me the most another friendship with a with a a friend um that we talked a lot about a lot of things but um yeah um so yeah now i'm uh i finished the masters it took me a long time um and i wrote about uh, i guess what we're going to talk about today which is uh i taught titled the thesis i think uh history of colonizing christianities which is kind of this in bed with the state thing and then i focused on um the origins and effects of the Dwight Moody, Cyrus McCormick Jr. gospel, what I what I called it, um, because there's a whole bunch of background that we'll probably get into today um, that happened shortly after Kierkegaard kind of named this problem with um, Christianity as it was in his day versus Christianity as he saw it practiced uh, biblically, as I think historically as well. I, I will. Uh, I'll have to check out that one by by Kierkegaard. I, I have to admit, you know, the first one that I read from Kierkegaard didn't didn't make me like him too much. Uh, it was the one I, I don't remember what it's called. Fear and trembling, I think. And Same I was like, for me. Same for me. I was like this is just weird. And then I watched some videos on him, and I was like, okay, well, I, the concept's really cool, but it seems like you have to kind of devote your life to understanding him because he uses all these pseudonyms. And I'm like, okay, I I can just get the you know get the gist from these guys. But I did end up committing to read uh, Attack Upon Christendom because that sounded really cool. So I read that yeah. and I, I enjoyed that. Um, but you you recommend um, training in Christianity? I think so, yeah. I, but, I, but I think Attack Upon Christendom is probably the best. Well, yeah, it's, it's a shorter. It takes like all his thoughts. I think in the very beginning, he has this thing where he's like, talks about like a dog on a leash, right? And then he's like, 
okay, now I'm like letting the dog out. Like, so he's like, I'm going to actually blast Christianity for what I think is really going on. Um, but it's kind of a rehash of something he wrote earlier, which is training in Christianity. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I would go with attack. If you had to choose one and you like, I would choose attack upon Christendom, but it was kind of training in Christianity that like hammered home the difference for me. Um, yeah, I can talk about that. I I guess what would be important here is because, um, you know, I wouldn't have understood the distinction uh, several years ago, but he, he is a Christian. He's not saying attack upon Christianity. He's saying right. attack upon Christendom. And I think that's, yes. that's an important sti- distinction that not everybody might understand. So maybe you could talk a little bit about Kierkegaard and why he's important for, for Christianity, because he is a Christian uh, and attacking mm-hmm. Christendom, I would say is a, is a very important job of being a true Christian. Yeah. So in attack upon Christendom, that is kind of what he, he has this line and I can't remember. I think it is, I think it is attack upon Christendom where he says, Oh, Luther, how terrible. Do you know this line? You had 95 theses, but I have only one. My one thesis is that Christianity no longer exists. In the land of Christendom, you know, he was going back in between uh, Copenhagen and Denmark, mostly Copenhagen, but it was a small, it was not a massive city at that time. Um, he also lived at the same time Hans Christian Andersen was kind of interesting, but they didn't like each other. They knew each other, but they didn't like each other. Um, Kierkegaard wasn't liked by very many people um, because he was kind of calling out the, the BS of the system, especially the Christian system. And in, and he actually says in his journals, I can't remember exactly where, but he says in his journals um, that his most important work was, was training Christianity, which is funny. Like you mentioned fear and fear and trembling. Cause I read that too. And I think that's almost like from a non-Christian perspective, they like that book more, but I think Kierkegaard was really dealing with problems of Christianity. That was his real thing. And um, I'd say Kierkegaard seems to be read more by non-Christians than by Christians. And so they don't like understand this Christianity versus Christendom thing or all this stuff that's going on. And so then they go to maybe the the text that's easiest to understand from a non-christian perspective potentially but i read fear and trembling and i was like okay leap of faith like great <laughs> you know like it didn't do very much for me but training christianity i think it's the like very first chapter um he talks about the invitation of jesus come and follow me and he says um when it's totally different who says come and follow me so in Denmark in his day, they had these big churches in the middle of every town um, with ministers that were paid very well by the state, um, wearing robes and gold and all this stuff saying, come and follow me, you know, announcing this is Jesus, come and follow. And he's like, that's easy. That's, that's, not, that's not crazy. That's not shocking. That's very easy to follow this wealthy thing. But he's like, but Jesus would, he never spoke from glory is the, is the term that he used, at least translated in, in English. There's a few translations, by the way. What, the book is sometimes called Training in Christianity and sometimes called Practice in Christianity. I don't know which is better. I've kind of flipped through both. I, the one I read was called Training in Christianity. Um, 
but he says, so when Jesus says that in the gospel, he is, he's like a homeless ex carpenter, washed up rabbi who says, come and follow me. And I was thinking about that. Okay. If I saw like somebody on the street, um, who's saying, come and follow me, you know, come be fishers of men. <laughs> uh, you, that's crazy. That is absurd. You know, that's not the kind of person that we'd follow. Um, and so I think that is like almost the foundation of Christendom, this wealthy, incredible church, robes, money, everything, versus someone who's saying, no, I came to bring good news to the poor. And um, and so there's this distinction of Christianity of Jesus versus the Christendom of his day and I would say our day and probably, you know, ever since Constantine pretty much or Theodosius to be a little bit more historically correct. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think that's the distinction and Kierkegaard also then is kind of considered the father of existentialism, which is not, at least in my understanding, it's not as um, inaccessible as I originally thought. Um, I think it just means more like you use the tools that you have to make sense of the world. Um, and every individual has kind of their own tools that are available to them. Um, and so Kierkegaard used his own tools that were available to him to kind of uncover this version of this reading of Christianity versus the dominant reading. And he actually says uh, it's, it's weird because, and I feel the same way myself, but he says um, there are a few places where he says, I'm not a Christian. Um, but he's, he's referring to that Christendom kind of thing, because for most people, when they think Christianity, they think of what he calls Christendom. And he's like, I'm not a part of this. But then, you know, what do you call what he's doing? Because he's, because it's it's all Christian stuff. He's pulling it all from Jesus. But he's like, I don't want to identify the, the Christendom thing. Um, he even, there's one part he said, like, um, something like, I think this was in the, like, uh, weird, weird title thing, like philosophical fragments or something to this effect. Um, but he says, the difficulty in previous times in being a Christian was that you had to become a Christian. But the difficulty today is that in order to be a Christian, you have to leave Christianity. But he's again talking about that Christendom thing. He's like, in order to be a Christian, you have to leave Christendom. And that is the hard part. So, you know, it's like the word, and it doesn't mean, you know, people, from, for the vast majority of people, Christianity means the thing that they see on the corner. Um, but then for him, it meant something quite different. Um, and yeah, I love that distinction of Christianity versus Christendom. Uh, so that that helped me a lot. Um, and then what's weird is that um, he was extremely influential with, uh, especially that existentialist trend, which is probably still the most dominant thing in, in at least European philosophy, I think. I don't know if... Um, within um the U united states where you have more of an analytic perspective and i don't think that existentialism is so dominant um but uh i think it is in 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 europe um at least the mainland the continent of europe not so much england perhaps but um germany france netherlands belgium etc like that um 
Yeah. So, so my impression, just to kind of uh, maybe summarize and, and pull some things together, um, you know, my impression of of what Kierkegaard does, and and maybe going back to uh, the introduction with the reformers and everything, is that when oh, the yeah. reform when the reformers sought to reform, they reformed some theological things, and they it seems like a big deal to us as Protestants, like, man, they got rid of, you know, icons and, and, and those are big things in, in some sense, like in a, in a visual sense. Um, but the structure was still there because now you basically just have a church that, you know, has its wealth and power just with different groups of people under slightly different theologies and, and stuff. So it, it really wasn't all that revolutionary, what Kierkegaard does is far more revolutionary. And, you know, maybe I don't know where the Anabaptists would be in this because you've got you've got nonviolence and and certain groups throwing off the state completely, which are which is pretty revolutionary. You've got I think it's the Hutterites or, or whatever who share their wealth in common. I mean, you, the Anabaptists are doing some pretty revolutionary things, the various sects. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's that's more like, I guess, what we see in Jesus. And that that's that's something that started me down this path was when I was like, man, everybody, everybody wanted to kill Jesus. People want to kill Christians in other countries. Like, why don't people want to kill me? And mm-hmm. like, well, because we're part of the the power system and we're not revolutionary. Mm-hmm. We, we really aren't. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know any, maybe where we would go with this is one of the themes that I've had throughout this season is kind of a, a false prophet versus a true prophet. And I, I think it was you who shared uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's article, The King's Court. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I I, I deep I respect Niebuhr a lot, but um, I don't know that much about him. Okay, well, he, he had this article um, like called the, something like The King's Court, but basically he's, he's talking about how, um, I think he was referring to Billy Graham when he was, when he was writing, but he's basically saying, uh, you look in the Bible and the prophets who are in The King's Court aren't the good ones the prophets who are mm-hmm. who are in the wilderness tend to be the the ones that are the good ones because getting close to the power is not usually good um so i would say that kierkegaard um he there's a lot of self-sacrifice that he had to do um he, he knew yeah. what could happen because of his ideas and he seems like a true prophet because he's not calling people to easy things and he's not speaking from a position of power he's speaking from a position that's going to probably have people throw stones at him maybe you could talk about um the importance of of kierkegaard as a true prophet as compared to false prophet yeah um i did i was doing more research on the kierkegaard thing and this kind of pulls a little bit to the side but um uh i uncovered i was just trying to find like a historical line like okay kierkegaard influenced who you know and, and there is like a big uh, historical line but then this idea of kind of two christianities um one of like the more powerful christendom but then another one that's a little bit harder um more prophetic um to pull from one of my favorite one of the most other most helpful people cornell west um talks about the prophetic versus the constantinian versions of christianity and that would i mean it's it's like it as you read deeper you find it everywhere so neighbor saying this thing about the king's court makes so much sense um, but actually before Kierkegaard, because I think he wrote that um, attack upon Christendom, which, by the way, it's the one thesis is that Christianity no longer exists. 
and his one task is to reintroduce Christianity to Christendom. That's what, and then he wanted a title. He wrote Thickness Unto Death and Training in Christianity, intending for them to be one book. And that was going to be called subtitled uh, Reintroducing Christianity to Christendom. That was his like, so Sickness Unto Death and Training Christianity were supposed to be together with that subtitle. I can't remember what he's going to call it, uh, the title. But um, but yeah, then it ended up getting split up and um, whatever. But um, he said that in 1855. In 1845, uh, Frederick Douglass wrote um, his autobiography, his first. He wrote it like three times. Um, but his first autobiography, and at the very end of it, he he like wrote like a I think it's it's the, it's called the appendix, and he just says, "What I have said respecting Christianity, I intend only to to apply to the slaveholding Christianity of this land, not of the pure peaceable." Can't remember all the descriptive all the adjectives he used to describe Jesus, but he's like, "I consider them." completely diametrically opposed system the slaveholding christianity of the united states versus the pure peaceable um christianity of of christ so then he has and that's that was the earliest i could find of this two christianities idea 1845 um which incidentally the same year that the southern baptist convention left the american missionary baptists because the American Missionary Baptists decided they were not going to allow slaveholding pastors. And so all the slaveholders left the American Baptists to start the slaveholding Baptist convention or Southern Baptist convention in 1845, the same year that um, Frederick Douglass wrote that um, thing about slaveholding Christianity, but it's very profitable. Slaveholding is extremely profitable. I feel like we don't acknowledge and powerful Christianity in general is extremely profitable. And we forget that power can do a lot of things to justify itself. It can do a lot of charity um, to justify itself. Um, I could talk about George Whitehead for a minute if you wanted, but because um, he, are you familiar with that story? Uh, I don't think so. Or it's Whitfield actually, George. George yeah. Whitfield. Yeah. Whitfield. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he, he got slaves in order to uh, fund an orphanage. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, and that was that like similar time period. I think he was actually like nominally against slavery with thought it's you know, not that great of an idea. And then, so, and he's trying to raise money for his orphanage and somebody was like, well, here's seven slaves. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll treat him good. And then as soon as like it started working out for him, he was like, I like slavery, actually. <laughs> and so Georgia, he even influenced Georgia to become a slave state. It was going to become like no black people um, allowed, basically. But then they were like, OK, we'll take black slaves in large part because of George Whitfield. So, yeah, that's you know, that's something that <laughs> that um, that was the turning point for me. It, it was the it was the thing that showed me it, it just changed my mind on a lot of different things was this consequentialism that I saw, you know, it started with Trump, um, mm -hmm. where it's, wait, wait a second. Like you're throwing off all this integrity because it's like, well, we got to win. Why? For abortion. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, but that you're doing a bad thing to get something that you perceive mm -hmm. as a good thing. Like that's still, you get how that's not a good thing. Right. But they mm -hmm. didn't. It's like you, I will do anything as long as the thing that I'm fighting against, I perceive as more evil. And so it, you see it just, I think Christendom is filled with consequentialism. I think it it runs on that as fuel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm totally. Yeah, I think he's, as we look in history, we just see it over and over and over. And we don't realize, I think, that we inherit, like, the choices of the previous generation. And so we look and we say, why aren't there any black people in our church? And it's like, oh, it's because, like, the previous generation, like, literally ran them off. And so, the, you know, it was, oh, it wasn't me, you know, or whatever, but it doesn't matter because, like, it was already done. It was chosen for you, you know, the we inherited this weird thing. Um, consequentialism, good, good term, good term. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's kind of sidetracked the Kierkegaard thing, but um, Frederick Douglass helped me understand that a little bit more. And then, as, and then it's like it's oh, it's, it's been present throughout um, Christian history. But I think Kierkegaard might have been like the first to like really name it intensely because also like you said the reformers and i was very interested in the things you had to say about zwingli because i haven't really looked into him very much but um but yeah luther i mean he he was passionate about a few things and um very thankful for the impact that he had um but then yeah it was co-opted by much of the of the princes and you know i don't know that like king james was a particularly good guy but um (laughs) Uh, we owe a lot of the English Bible to him. Um, th- th- thinking of the Anglican church or thinking of um, any of the churches just became a different version of the same. But there's, uh, but there's also, I think there's the, there's the um, liberative parts and the oppressive parts of, of every tradition is, is kind of the way that there's yeah. priests and prophets. Yeah, it's certainly not to say that that everybody was bad or but you you have a system that um that is is problematic and you know, it was interesting when you told me that uh a lot of Christians don't read Kierkegaard um you know that this Christian who's who has this internal critique um and I think people are doing the same thing with with people who are you know deconstructing today where it's like mm-hmm. well they're not they're not really Christians so I don't have to listen to their critique because they're not true Christians. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's nice to be able to dismiss so you don't really have to to listen to those critiques and and maybe change and apply. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of running with that uh, a little bit earlier, we talked about brought in consequentialism and, and talked about how Kierkegaard is a, I, I perceive him as a true prophet. Um, he might not have been right about everything, but he, he, he was trying to get the church right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the things that I think you see with true prophets are that they they are idealists, and what I what I mean by that isn't that they're naive in the sense that they think that they're necessarily going to achieve the ideal, but they say, mm-hmm. "Hey, look, this is the ideal, and even if I don't attain that, even if I don't affect the results, I'm not a consequentialist, and I'm going to cling to the ideal and pursue the ideal, even if I don't mm-hmm. obtain that, because that's." that's what Christians are supposed to do. You know, Jesus, um, all of, all of his teachings are essentially ideals. And I'm not going to love my neighbor perfectly. Even, even in the most loving thing I do for them, there's probably some, some seed of self-interest involved that I can't weed out. Um, so nevertheless, I pursue to love my neighbor more and more until hopefully I can weed that out. Even if that's after I'm, I'm dead and resurrected. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe you could talk a little bit about 
Kierkegaard. And uh, I don't know if you have any ideas about the ideal that that kind of motivated him, that he latched onto, that that drove him forward, and um, how that was important for for him to have to deal with with critique and hardship and and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think that I, it's an interesting question because I'm trying to think. Okay, what was his ideal that he was after? And I think um, I think that it was perhaps so much in its infancy that that. I mean, it's like he just was trying to call people into a Christianity that was a little bit more aware, maybe. Um, and it's almost like, yeah, it was a, it's a practice of seeing what it means to be good news to the poor, I think. Um, I think because he saw the like Christendom that was just um, excited about the wealth excited about the domination um and people even there oh, there's a quote that you uh put in the notes about um soldiers aspiring to be generals and i think that he wanted to see so like a more soldier wait and i think in the quote he says were you gonna bring this up later or am i stealing your thunder right now <laughs> um because he said something about like, not every soldier can be a general, but like the best soldiers, like everybody wants a soldier that aspires to be a general, but he's like 99% of the, of the soldiers are not going to become generals. So why do we like put this fantasy on, on the soldiers to like fail to, and what if we focused on becoming a more, uh, working class, um, uh, there's a door that's about to slam right now. <laughs> um, what if we aspired to be a more working class kind of, uh, have a, a more working class approach, I guess. Not that everybody's trying to become a billionaire or something like this, but um, that we could do something that um, uh, values the common person. So I think that uh, potentially... Jesus and Kierkegaard are both advocating this, just the prophets in general um, tend to be advocating good news to the poor, which is what Isaiah said. And then Jesus quoted, I think it's Luke four, where he said, I came to bring good news to the poor um, and blessed are the poor. Um, that's Luke. Luke, Matthew, of course, has the in spirit part, but then Luke doesn't. He just said, blessed are the poor and then woe to you who are rich. So that's another part that I, I feel like never got mentioned that much, but I, um, in the Christianity that I grew up in, um, that there is like this poor and rich distinction. Um, and I think that Kierkegaard was trying to bring that in. Um, and it's, you know, it can be scary for some people, but Kierkegaard and Marx both studied in Berlin at the same time in the same place. Um, Kierkegaard interacted a little bit more with Feuerbach, who was like a little bit more focused on religion. Um, but e Kierkegaard and Marx also have the same birthday, uh, May 5th. So Marx emphasizing this like workers thing and then Kierkegaard adv uh, advocating this like poor version of Christianity. I'm not sure that they're so different. And um, there is like a weird part where Kierkegaard says um, that he... 
it's also in his journals um, somewhere that he says, he talks about like the secret that he never let out, um, except in one place, this one like book on Adler it's called. And so I dug into book on Adler and I was trying to think, what is the secret that he's talking about? And um, he makes a reference to Feuerbach, um, Feuerbach who in many ways like kind of, well, ended a, the liberal version of Christianity is kind of, uh, like before fundamentalism kind of ever became a dominant thing. It was kind of like Schleiermacher is the father of liberal Christianity, which is kind of like individualist. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to like summarize really shortly. And as soon as you start to talk about Kierkegaard, Feuerbach, Schleiermacher, Marx, everybody has like their thoughts on what each of those people were trying to do. Um, and mine is uh, potentially a little bit nuanced, but, um, but I think that Kierkegaard, wanted to be the Feuerbach who stayed Christian. Um, and in a way, Karl Barth is kind of, he brings a bunch from Kierkegaard. He was a big fan of Kierkegaard. Um, as far as I'm aware, I mean, there's probably a lot of Barthians out there that um, could do better on that topic than I could. But I think what Bart Bart actually has a, a intro to Feuerbach where he says, yes, Feuerbach was right about Schleiermacher's Christianity. Um, but he has not approached like the Christianity that Bart is talking about and Kierkegaard is talking about. So, um, and Marx builds off of Feuerbach's understanding. Um, so anyways, I don't know, going into the weeds with that again, which is a thing that can happen. But um, what was the what was the question again? Where, where were we? <laughs> It was uh, Kierkegaard's ideal, what drove him. And, oh, and yeah. I think you've I, been saying the, the poor was influential significantly. I think that's the gist so yeah. far. So, yeah, and I think that um, this like Feuerbach and Marxian, um, potentially more the ideal of Marx, not that he obtained it. But um, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about Philippians 3 the whole time where you said, because Paul says, um, um was that I aspire to the uh, resurrection of Christ and a fellowship in his suffering. Not that I have already obtained it, but I press on towards the goal. So Paul knows he's not perfect either. And I think that that's the a humility piece that, um, that I think actually Kierkegaard, Feuerbach and Marx, actually, I think that they all have this. Um, I don't know so much that, Feuerbach has it exactly, but definitely Kierkegaard and Marx. I think they have this um, sense that of humility that, um, like Marx, goes back and and revises a lot of his um, earlier writings, uh, which is something that not that many people knows know. But um, uh, that's the idea of that Hegel, all who taught all of them. Kierkegaard didn't like Hegel, but it's kind of like a, a nuanced thing. And I think it was related to this Christendom versus Christianity thing. I think that Kierkegaard saw Hegel as part of Christendom, um, even though he had like some very influential ideas, uh, like particularly historical materialism and the dialectic, or not historical materialism, that's that's Marx. It would just be the, the process of modernity, um, the dialectic of revising itself. It's funny because, you know, when you talk about philosophy, it sounds so elevated. And but then when you start comparing philosophers, it sounds like a soap opera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think it, I think it is. I think it is. Um, 
and it sounds elevated and i was like oh no and and if you are in those academic circles man oof, i don't i don't uh it's the same as a like a christian thing like how many um angels can you fit on the head of a pin you know and it's like oh my gosh like i don't think this even matters and it's uh there's a lot of that but i think once you are able to kind of get a grasp on something like kierkegaard's idea of christianity um i think that um but Kierkegaard was very much like individualist. Um, I don't think he, um, I would almost say he's like a Christian version of Nietzsche in a way as well, which um, a lot of people probably wouldn't like to hear. But um, but I read Nietzsche as much more Christian than many others do. Um, like, I think that you could put this Christianity versus Christendom idea uh, on Nietzsche. Um, though he is in a time period where he thinks that there's no reintroducing Christianity to Christendom and he wants to scrap the whole language. He wants to scrap the whole thing and start over. Um, whereas Kierkegaard thinks that the Christian project can be um, reintroduced. Um, yes, sir. And I, I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I want to go back just a, a little bit. It it was interesting how you know you pulled out the poor from from that quote on the the military, um, whereas I I kind of read a little bit further and and pulled out a different different emphasis on the end slightly, yeah. um, but it, it reminds me a little bit of what you said you know, with Paul in Philippians three, where he knows he's not going to obtain perfection yet he he pushes on right towards the goal, and uh, it. At the end of of that quote that you were referencing uh, with the generals and the enlisted men, you know, uh, Kierkegaard goes on to talk about how he's like, look, if if the enlisted people don't desire to be generals, if everybody just enlists and they're like, well, I'm happy where I am, you know, no moving up the ranks, I'm good. He's like, what kind of what kind of army are you going to have? You have all these unmotivated people who aren't becoming better soldiers, who aren't getting smarter, who aren't, uh, you know, jumping through the hoops that of discipline that get them better. He's like, they're, they're all going to die in the trenches or, or that's what I envision. Um, because then he says, uh, he says that basically the church is saying to these people, Hey, be tranquil. You'll just like all the other soldiers. You're just like everybody else. You'll become mm-hmm. blessed just like everybody else, you know, no, no need to progress. Um, and he says that that's a euphemism for, you're all going to hell like all the others, but this truth won't produce any money and the other teachings pay, pay brilliantly, you know, to tell people that they're fine just where they are. And so mm-hmm. that's what, it, in my mind, the ideal, you know, maybe maybe poverty was kind of a, a driving force socially for him, mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. it seems like uh, bringing up individualism, it seems like this individuality of don't be like one of the masses. You are mm-hmm. your own person who... Um, should be trying to become a general, should be progressing mm-hmm. through the ranks, should be um, becoming more and more disciplined. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's, it seems like that that makes a lot of sense with what you said, this this self-motivation um, towards towards being like Jesus, the general, whatever Jesus is. The- yeah. Yeah, and actually, I mean, you could read this as a, as a critique of, of Marx's Marxian thought um also uh and it makes sense but he doesn't name I guess here he doesn't name 
or does he um doesn't name what his ideal of that he's after is he just says that he has one um right yeah i didn't i didn't see a specific yeah and i think and i think it's probably it's just so much it's so much in its infancy like the 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 possibility so he's just which also is kind of prophetic in a way like i feel like the um the prophets are tend to be saying love your neighbor and you're not loving your neighbor so your your community is going to fall apart um but they don't exactly say like what will happen i i mean like god will show up you know like something yeah, I, I guess what what happen. they do a lot of times is they say, you know, turn away from your idols or stop oppressing. Uh, they don't, as far as I can think of it, there's not a whole lot of positive because it's like, well, you know, you know what God says that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, I know that this picture that I see in front of me is terrible. Stop doing that. Um, right. And so it seems like maybe that's what Kierkegaard is doing. He doesn't. I'm not that familiar with all his works, but I don't know that he puts forth a ton of positive so much as he attacks Christendom and, and, and just says, Hey, we know that that's not good. Yeah. 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 And I think I, I sympathize with the critique of that saying, okay, well, what do you want me to do? You know, like, what do, what are you about? If you're, you know, I sympathize with that critique, but I actually just don't think that it's uh it's just a much more simple way and maybe even that's a little key to existentialism in general is that it's it's much more simple like what Kierkegaard um is remembered by the secular uh readers is that he's just advocating a much simpler um thing which i think is existentialism not that it's easy but it's simple yeah i mean it's love justice love mercy and walk humbly with god and Kierkegaard can say that's not it (laughs) You know, I'm okay. Yeah, you're, you're not loving justice. You're not uh, walking humbly with your God. I might, I might not be able to give you a, a a huge formula of what to do, but I know that you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the one of the quotes that I was thinking of when he says, "I'm not a Christian." This, like, he's he says like, just because I can say that you're that you're not a Christian doesn't mean I am a Christian, which you know, again, might be part of that, like, humility of not that I've already obtained it, but I press on towards towards the goal of the Philippians 3 thing. I, I, I like wanna... your <laughs> Okay, I think I think this is actually uh, the next one's the last question I have on Kierkegaard, I think. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I would consider myself a christian anarchist because i think every iteration of the state is terrible because nobody does anything good with consolidated power um well i shouldn't say you don't do anything good with it i just think the the bad is always going to be there in in huge proportions um but kierkegaard i like kierkegaard in part because he he kind of rails against the state and and points that out and one of the things that I've talked about this season is I don't know if you're familiar with uh, David Graeber, but he um, he talks about. Oh, <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, and, not so uh, familiar, but I do like his work. I mean, yeah, I like his stuff. I've I've seen a couple of his videos, and I've only read one of his book. I have some on my reading list, but they just they haven't fit for this season. But one of the things that I I like 
uh, that he says that he points out, and, I, and it's probably not novel to him, but you know, he says that there are essentially three methods that that people use to control. They use power, um, information, and charisma, and uh, it seems like as a Christian, I can say, well, manipulating any of those three seems to distort God's intended order because power becomes violence, manipulating information becomes deception or untruth, and uh, manipulating charisma becomes seduction, right? Saying, uh, bribing and seducing people to do things that uh, they otherwise wouldn't do that that aren't good. Mm-hmm. This year, we are we are coming up into an election year in in the states, mm-hmm. and there aren't any groups chomping at the bit as as much as conservative evangelical Christians are chomping at the bit to get their guy in power. Maybe girl, mm-hmm. but probably guy. Um, how? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, Kierkegaard, maybe in relation to the state, in relation to to power, um, and and then help us to segue into what we're going to talk about next, which is, and then compare that to conservative Christians and uh, our desire for power and how that maybe pits us against the true prophets. How does it make us false prophets? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I think that. Kierkegaard's language gets co-opted by um, the conservative Christianity, um, whatever word we're going to use for that. Um, like this uh, critique of the government uh, that I also grew up with. It said, "Oh, we're all we're all for a small government," you know. And then I and then I realized, well, how come we're like, how come the military we just want to massively increase this every chance we get like here's unending massive military presence globally just absolutely nauseating the the amount that we spend on blowing other places up (laughs) um and so i was like that's not small government you know um and so i became like a libertarian like pretty quickly uh i i i don't think that there's they have a very good like later i i kind of came to the conclusion, I don't think they have a good answer for wealth inequality. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the biggest problems we have today. So I don't identify as a libertarian anymore, but if coming from the Republican or, or conservative Christian perspective, I think that um, they co-opt this language of being against the government, which Kierkegaard was certainly was. And it makes sense um, to have a kind of Christian anarchism and be connected to Kierkegaard. I think you can get that from Kierkegaard. Um, and David Graeber, um, also uh, uh, very uh, historically informed anarchist perspective, um, that isn't so crazy as I, as I, you know, inherited the idea that anarchism was so crazy. But it's it's actually like makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, so it makes sense to me that Kierkegaard. But then thinking of the religious right and um, their demand for power i think that especially if you look at the southern baptist convention being the slaveholding baptist convention they are not anti-government actually they are very pro-government um and they left the they they left the american baptist who wanted to critique it a bit more um so 
and yet they would now say, oh, we're critiquing, we're, we want to drain the swamp, you know, Trump wants to drain the swamp, but it's almost like the little bit of kind of civil rights thing, I think that's what they, that is what they're actually uh, draining. Uh, we know, I mean, we're going to talk about, I guess, the, the historical stuff, um, but the the conservative Christians, you know, Jerry Falwell in particular, got his start by being um, anti-civil rights, by saying that um, God ordained the separation of black and white people and um, that the decision to uh, desegregate was anti-God. Um, and then he started what became Liberty University um, as a whites only segregation academy, like a pretty openly, this is like they pulled their students out of the public school and started these segregation academies. And it tends to be Christian academies. What Christian meant was um, a segregation academy um, in most places. So um, their critique of government is actually the critique of like a little bit of justice being inserted. Um, I don't know that um, desegregation was done perfectly. I don't think that it uh, fixed many problems in the United States. I don't think that the putting a Black Lives Matter sticker on your car is particularly effective at uh, <laughs> at uh, adding much justice um, to uh, to our world, but um, but I think it's a little bit better than advocating uh, segregation or saying we're not going to address those kind of social things. Um, yeah, uh, on that really quickly, I, I uh, just read a book a few weeks ago called This Vast Southern Empire, which um, was fascinating to me because he kind of he says some of the things that that or he he gives examples of, of what you just said, where um, he's like, you know, when the Civil War happened, you had tons of people, tons of Southerners that were in 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 positions it's like they weren't in positions of agriculture. They were in positions uh, related to the military and foreign affairs and those sorts of things because they just they dominated and populated uh, the areas that were going to expand the empire in part because of slaveholding works well by expanding and having more places for slaves to be, but also to preserve their, um, you know, to preserve slaveholding. So they were actually very big government. And, and a part of the reason that the early United States spread so much was, was Southerners who are th theoretically about states' rights and not big federal government, yet they were the ones kind of uh, fueling that. Um, and then, you know, another aspect that's always interesting to me is you've got these people who want states' rights but then when it when it comes to uh, when there's a slave that crosses state lines, that state that they cross into doesn't have the right to keep them there. Right. They have to mm -hmm. give them back. Mm -hmm. right? No states. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly what you said um, makes a lot of sense. I grew up small government. You know, it, it doesn't work out that way. I think the first person I president I voted for was was uh, Bush, too. And he like upped the debt by bajillions. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think you know we were in the same living in the same building at that time and i think that uh you know the same thoughts were probably in our worlds that was just like 
this is not actually small government. Like what we're, if, if we're about small government, which I think is a kind of a noble ideal, um, Republicans aren't doing it or like, you know, the conservative Christian thing is not, is not advocating small government. They, they just, I think they're just against like the community aspects actually. So as I've drifted more, you know, to the left, like whatever that means to whatever the people, um, I think that I've seen that they want big community and small government. Um, and the conservative Christianity that I grew up in wants big government, small community. But we use the word, the right uses government for community, and then the left uses the word community for government. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. That's, we like that, a, we like a big government to be in other countries and on other people's doorsteps uh, to to make sure that it ensures my personal wealth and freedom here to do what I want to do. Um, I don't care if that other person in that other country doesn't get to do what they want to do or live. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're saying for the for the left, it would be more like no, no, no. Keep like keep our military here. Let's let's spend on making infrastructure better. Let's spend on, um, you know, childcare so that, um, we can help parents out in communities. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's the way I see it now. Like I'm, I'm for small government, big community. Um, but I feel like that was flipped. We, we, we there's no distinction between community and government. I, I suppose, um, there's not enough of a distinction. And then I think the centrist perspective is is maybe more dumb than both, which is like, maybe we can just have a little bit of slavery. How about that? You know, <laughs> like, uh, maybe we can just let the South have slaves and the North will, you know, it's like, uh, not great, actually. Um, but what if we just stick a Black Lives Matter sticker on, on, you know, what if we rename the street after Martin Luther King? How about that? How about that? You know, <laughs> like, uh, it's not gonna, probably not not particularly a good symbolic victory but it's not very much significant all right um, I, I want to uh, build a bridge now to the next century well i guess it's yeah it's kind of partly yeah. the 19th century but going into the 20th yeah. and this is more yeah. your wheelhouse so i'm i'm sure you'll you'll have at it here but um for me i'm i'm still and evangelical, like you said, I don't know what to call myself. Am I conservative, evangelical? Like it depends. Are you talking theologically, morally, uh, various sorts of things? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what I am, but I, I am in an evangelical denomination, and I agree with a lot of the theology. Um, mm-hmm. But the the orthopraxy, I have I have some big problems with, um, and so I, I want to focus on that group. We could focus on on where Kierkegaard goes for a lot of different groups of people, but this is my group and I want mm-hmm. to create some internal critique for myself and for my group. So I I want you to maybe build a bridge from Kierkegaard into the the late 19th century and early 20th and get us to the rise of fundamentalism, which which then will lead into evangelicalism. And specifically, I know you like to bring up Dwight Moody, so maybe maybe have him as a, a main character here. Yeah. So this is kind of like the master's thesis that I wrote was um, I discovered a book called Guaranteed Pure by Tim Glegg um, talking about Moody Bible Institute and business and Christianity and how it all tied together. 
And he just had like kind of this like half chapter. So talking about the Haymarket affair and how Dwight Moody was a big winner in that, um, in that moment because um, so like started a little bit further back, Cyrus McCormick senior had, um, this was 1832, which is a big year for a lot of things. It's also the year that Emerson decided not to be a pastor. It's like kind of my other thing I'm really excited about is the American transcendentalist of which Ralph Waldo Emerson is kind of the most famous. Um, he, he decided to not be a pastor anymore. To be a better pastor is what he wrote in his journal that year. But um, that same year, Cyrus McCormick Sr. and his the person that he enslaved named Joe Anderson developed the grain harvester this thing that could be pulled behind a horse. And it was kind of the first year that it was successful in, in accomplishing what they wanted it to accomplish, which was uh, just a massive uh, rate. It's just way more efficient than um, what had been done before. And um, so, yeah, it became marketed and he, he got really, um, McCormick got really wealthy off of this. Joe Anderson, not so much. Um, but what, what McCormick Sr. did with a lot of his wealth was he tried to advocate for the slaveholding Christianity. He even started a seminary in Chicago called McCormick Theological Seminary um, that was intended to be kind of a bastion of Southern slaveholding Christianity in Chicago in the North. He went to Chicago because it was geographically um, well-situated to get his, um, he could get wood and resources on is it Lake Michigan, the Great Lakes? Which like the Great Lakes? I don't know. I've never been to Chicago. Only one time it was the airport. Um, but it was well situated to get his uh, harvester to farmers west and the resources that he needed to build lots and lots of these um, grain harvesters. And he used that to advocate against Abraham Lincoln. In fact, they were born, I think, in the same year, and they just like butted heads um, constantly. McCormick Senior and Abraham Lincoln. Um. Eventually, McCormick, even his theological seminary, ended up turning on him. They they started becoming abolitionists, and he'd pull his money out, and he was like, kind of upset that um, he was creating abolitionists by advocating Christianity. So, yeah, I think that's a cool part of the story um, that it it kept flipping on him, um, and eventually he loses, right? And Abraham Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, and so Joe Anderson is freed. And McCormick Sr. ended up, he did buy a house for him somewhere. I, I'm not sure where, but, and Joe Anderson like dies in the obscurity. Um, and McCormick is obviously still a big deal. He passes off his grain harvester thing to his son, Cyrus McCormick Jr. And one of the first things that Cyrus McCormick Jr. does is he starts bringing in like all these kind of machines so he can make, um, he's way more profitable than he was before and he needs less people and his, even the workers that were there are becoming uh, more and more efficient. And they're saying, hey, what if we have the eight hour workday? Because we don't, we're good at what we do. We don't need to work these 10 hour days, six days a week uh, anymore. And it would probably be better, better for our community if we had more time to do things. And McCormick Jr. was like, coming from the slaveholding Christianity, I think that these the origins of McCormick's thing we owe to a lot, a lot to his father's slaveholding Christianity perspective that God gave me money and I get to choose how I spend it and more profit is good for me, more money. And so more charity potentially or not 
whatever the case may be. And so he decides to fire half of his people and um, make the rest of them work more and harder. Pretty, a lot like Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh and Moses. But Cyrus McCormick Jr., like his father before him, is advocating, he's using Christian words to, to do this stuff. And he has a good friend named Dwight Moody who keeps saying, I want to start a Bible school um, to advocate this personal, plain, practical approach. And so the people of Chicago protest on May 1st, 1886, becomes a big deal. Um, yeah, we, outside. we uh, celebrate that here in Europe, <laughs> not, not so much in the States, huh? It's so weird. Yeah, that's very weird. And in fact, Joe Biden, the um, Marxist communist that apparently he is, I don't, <laughs> I don't think he has anything to do with any of those things, but he actually declared May 1st loyalty day. So it's, it's not even, they want to distract from this event. Um, and what happened was the people of Chicago are protesting, the workers of Chicago are protesting and saying, this is unjust. We should be building a community that works for everybody. And instead we're like making some people extremely wealthy and most people extremely poor. Um, but McCormick doesn't care. And the police, you know, it just doesn't make sense to people, whatever. So people are protesting. McCormick hires strike breakers. Uh, becomes, you know, a yelling match, potentially some violence, whatever. The police come in on May 3rd and kill four protesters. The next day, May 4th, um, they have a thing uh, of a demonstration in Haymarket Square. Um, and a preacher, actually, Samuel Fielden, um, is giving the talk saying that God cares about the workers. Um, I don't know that he's being explicitly theological, but his theology certainly informs his advocating for the people, for the working people, as opposed to McCormick Jr. Somebody throws a bomb. The police come. Well, the police come in. Then somebody throws a bomb, and the police open fire on everybody. And I think the possibly agreed upon is that it's about two hundred and something wounded, and about I think it's fourteen dead. Um, Samuel Fielding gets shot as he's trying to run away. Um, but McCormick and the police and everybody just have this big panic that um, the workers are just getting out of line. And so they they know who the, the activists are and they arrest hundreds, but they end up sentencing eight to death. Um, four of those people are killed. I think the only one that was present at the time of this of this moment was Samuel Fielden who was preaching or giving the talk but he gets sentenced to death uh, just like the seven others um, who all actually advocate anarchism um, or are connected and sympathetic towards anarchism um, because they, they think that the government of the time is not great the Cyrus McCormick Jr. government um, and so Moody then uses this moment to say hey Cyrus McCormick you need me to put a Bible school in and I will train Christian workers. I will tell people that, you know, they should submit to you. He does actually have a little critique for McCormick Jr. I have to give him that. Um, like he thinks that the firing of half of the workforce was pretty unjust. Cyrus McCormick's mom also says, yo, that's not that, that's not that cool what you did and you're going to create problems. But he kind of just goes for it and like does the hard thing and fires everybody and, and then kind of, Slightly moderates, but not really. Um, so then Moody, then with this massive, I think it was like $100,000, which is you know, a lot at that time period, um, starts 
the Chicago Evangelization Society, which we now know as the Moody Bible Institute, is renamed when Moody died to the Moody Bible Institute, 1899. He died December 1899. Actually, a big controversy, controversy moment, but we won't get into that. Um, um, so you have the Moody Bible Institute, but it's 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 the it's the Christendom. It's Cyrus McCormick Jr.'s version of Christianity, not Samuel Fielden's version of Christianity. Um, Samuel Fielden's Christian anarchism, even. Um, so from the Moody Bible Institute, they hire Reuben Archer Torrey. Reuben Archer Torrey um, actually gets mixed up. That this is a scandal. The scandal is that he didn't believe in medicine at the time period, and so. His daughter got really sick, eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Um, and he said, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to, like, God is going to heal her. I'm not going to give her the medicine. And at the last moment, he, like, realized, oh, my God, I think she's going to die. Calls in the doctor. The doctor comes. It's too late. The girl dies. Eight-year-old girl dies. And, every, you know, everybody that knows the situation is just like, what are you doing? Dwight Moody was not against medicine. In fact, he was like, we need to, like, medicine is a good thing it's we should bring this in and so he differed with tory on this that's why there was a big controversy at moody's death um and tory actually decides that it was his wavering is what killed his daughter so his lack of faith in the last moment he called in the doctor and he said that was my problem god was going to save her whatever but there's a disagreement and problems and so tory needs out he, he first goes on a world tour world speaking tour he speaks all over the world um but then this guy named lyman stewart who is very wealthy from 76 slash union oil he's a pennsylvanian but living in los angeles and upset it he's trying to control occidental bible college which is a it's a very prestigious school in los angeles and um he was donating three thousand dollars a year to their bible department he wanted like a dwight moody style bible department at occidental college but the people were like no you can't just donate money and then dictate who gets hired who gets fired etc so he says all right um screw you guys i'm starting my own bible institute i'm gonna call it the bible institute of los angeles modeled after the moody bible institute i like what you know cyrus mccormick and i like dwight moody's version of christianity so let's do the let's do biola is what it's today called Biola University. And then he hears a guy named Amzie Dixon, who whose brother is Thomas Dixon, who wrote a book called The Klansman. And basically Thomas Dixon was kind of a, uh, the book, The Klansman then becomes an early movie um, called Birth of a Nation, which like revitalized the KKK. So Thomas Dixon's brother, Amzie Dixon is a preacher that um, Lyman Stewart pulls and says, okay, R.A. Torrey and Tom uh, Am Amzie Dixon, I want you to create these documents that are basically Moody's Christianity, but like um, none of this like social stuff. We don't want people advocating like the Samuel Fielden thing. Of course, they don't know who Samuel Fielden is, but you know, none of this like Christian anarchism, none of this Christian um, advocating for working people you know they need to submit to the divine authority that those of us with money have and um so lyman stewart uh pays for seven hundred thousand copies of these to be sent to everybody that they can get an address for and they're called the fundamentals which is where we get the term fundamentalism from 
So I, I want to make sure that I'm understanding this because there are lots of names and, and things thrown around. Yeah. So tell me if the summary is is yeah. correct. The brother or cousin, I guess brother, of the brother. guy who made the film Birth of a Nation that revitalized the KKK mm-hmm. worked with the like founder or whatever of Biola to mm-hmm. create the fundamentals that basically jump-started what we know of as fundamental Christianity today. Yes. Yep. That is, yeah. yeah. And Amzi okay. and his brother Thomas were, I mean, they were both Southern slash slaveholding Baptists. So it's not, it's not crazy. Um, Lyman Stewart and the McCormicks were Presbyterians. Um, but Moody is basically the, the, origin of non-denominational christianity so he's like we're not going to mess with the denominational stuff and so it was like the conservative presbyterians and the conservative baptists that were they were trying to build this movement of fundamentalists and it didn't quite work out and it really fizzled out at the scopes trial when william jennings bryan who's actually kind of a christian socialist actually he was very um theologically conservative but um was for a big community and thought that um, the government should intervene. It's very, it's a very weird thing. William Jennings Bryan, he had the whole thing at the Scopes trial, which was a controversy over whether or not um, evolution should be taught in schools. Um, but Clarence Darrow, who was the attorney against um, William Jennings Bryan, he was advocating like that science, you know, slash evolution should be taught in schools. Um, ended up kind of William Jennings Bryan didn't have like a good interpretation of Genesis chapter one. He had a very face value um, uh, interpretation of Genesis one, and it just was seen as kind of a laughing stock. And William Jennings Bryan died five years later, which is crazy. He was three time candidate for president. He lost every time, but um, big big advocate for fundamentalist Christianity, which is weird because he was also conservative theology but um more of a christian socialism which is also the same for the what would jesus do person his name was charles sheldon is also an advocate of christian socialism that's what the what would jesus do thing was about um to advocate for a society rather than profit um pe- uh, people over profit um so fundamentalism, though, defined there was like their five points, which was um, inerrancy of scripture, which I think for them actually meant like Dwight Moody's. Um, I call it the Moody McCormick gospel because I don't think it would have been a big deal if it was only Moody. But because McCormick was the funding behind it. Um, so it, I think it was his plain interpretation. They, he didn't want to look at the historical, the social or the literary context which was what the seminaries were really arguing about at that time period. And Kierkegaard would have been, uh, he wasn't in seminary, but he would have, I mean, he's, he's advocating a historical or a social look um, at Christianity. Um, whereas the fundamentalists wanted to just get rid of that historical social thing and just think about, okay, I want to read this one verse and then say, what does it mean to me? And then that's how I'm going to go. So like, that's what the slaveholding Christians did as well. It's, you know, Ephesians 6, 5 says slaves be obedient to your masters. And they're like, that settles it. You know, slaves be obedient to your masters, pro-slavery. 
then you have to like look at the exodus and you're like is the exodus slaves being disobedient to their masters because you know um <laughs> so i think that there, there's like the historical and social context gets discarded by the fundamentalists and they they start to a big thing also weird weirdly or not was about the virgin birth of christ because historical and social scholars start to look at the greek um understanding of what it meant to be born of a virgin like plato was considered to be born of a virgin and it meant that he was like this elevated figure and only matthew and luke reference the virgin birth of christ and so the historical and social scholars start to say moody was or mary wasn't technically a virgin this is matthew and luke's way of saying that jesus is really important that greek people in particular would, would really understand so then they kind of discard this idea about, or they say it's not important, you know, whether or not Virgin uh, Mary was technically a virgin, but that becomes one of the fundamentalist doctrines. But really what it's about is like, is historical or social context important? Literary context, is that important to understanding what the Bible has to say? And Dwight Moody wants the Moody McCormick gospel, the, to- the Reuben Archer Tory slash Lyman Stewart gospel of Biola of fundamentalism says our plain interpretation is the authority, not the historical, social, literary thing, because, wow, that is a can of worms when you open that up. And then all of a sudden you're starting to advocate for these workers um, who get paid whatever I want to pay them, um, not not what is quote just this is oh, that's just way too much. You know, so, it, so then you would view the uh, the inerrancy thing as kind of a, a cementing of uh, the inability to question them. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, there's five points, and I, I have them here. I could pull them up real quick. But each of them, inerrancy is number one, but I think that's more Moody McCormick's face value interpretation. Which also, I don't want to say literal also, because I think that literal is a problematic term, because I think I take the Bible very literally, but um, I disagree quite a bit with Moody and McCormick's face value interpretation. Um, but most people like think of this in the literal versus metaphorical. I don't like to think of it that way. I think of it as face value versus socially, historically, and literary informed. Um but yeah, there's like five main points of fundamentalism. And it's really just trying to cut out that social, historical, and literary perspective of the Bible. Um, yeah. So then fundamentalism kind of falls apart in 1925. And they're kind of seen as like uninformed, anti-intellectual, you know, anti-science. But then in the humanities, it's like, well, you don't want the historical, you don't want the social, you don't want the literary perspective on things. You just want the perspective that says you know, you're, you're God's chosen people. And um, so there's many Bible institutes that are started at this time period, and they start to transition from being called Bible institutes to be called colleges. So our alma mater, Cedarville, is one of these places that um, was started, what was it, 1880 something? Um, uh, but it becomes Cedarville College at this point, um, rather than Cedarville. I don't know what it was originally called, actually. But um, but there's a lot of these um, that were started to be fundamentalist kinds of places 
And um, there's a great book written on this called Fundamentalist You by Adam Lotz. And he just kind of shows that like they were created to like cut out science, to cut out the wrong kind of the wrong parts of history there. And it, it's it's just it's very frustrating to me that I didn't know this before because I would have probably chosen differently, even though I'm happy to have met you and happy to have met the people that I met at Cedarville. But um, it was kind of a university built on cancel culture, which I'm not really a fan of on the right or the left. But um, but the right in my in my living experience, the right has done much more canceling than the left has done. Um, whatever the left means, because I don't know that that term it means too many different things to too many different people. Same thing with the right too. Let's we'll just be honest about that. But um, but yeah, like these fundamentalism was basically just a cancel culture kind of a movement. Um. Um, yeah, and uh, I, it might not fit in because I don't really know that much about him. But um, I know somebody that you've you've talked about uh, before was Jay Gresham Make, uh, Machen, and yeah. uh, you know I I just looked up his he started Westminster Theological, which is big in in my denomination. Uh, he mm-hmm. started that in 1929, so right after the the Scopes trial and f- the fundamentals and all that stuff. Yeah. So, and he, I mean, I love the Drake Gershomation story because it shows how much of a hypocrite he was. Um, and it just illustrates so well, but he was, he was probably the most, he was advocating with, um, what's the other guy's name at Princeton. <sighs> Princeton was the seminary that was like, had the most Southern people at it, even though it's in New Jersey. Um, but like the McCormicks, if I remember right, yeah, actually they both went to Princeton. McCormick Senior and McCormick Junior, I believe, both went to Princeton, and it was kind of oh, what's the terminology? And was it? It was. Um, I'm so disappointed. I'm forgetting the names because you would know this name. It was. I think it was called Old School Theology or something like that. And there was this guy. I think it was Charles somebody um, in the 1880s. So before was it finney uh, charles finney no finney no he's he's um spurgeon? he was an abolitionist not spurgeon i forget the guy's name he's R- at princeton. no <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy at princeton i think his i think the movement that he was about was called i think it was called old school theology like let's see if it comes up uh princeton theology was a tradition of conservative Blah, blah, blah. A BB Warfield. That's not the guy, but you heard of him before. Um, Charles Hodge. That's what it is. Charles Hodge. Um, so Charles Hodge and J. Gresham Machen were the conservative side of Princeton Theological Seminary, and Princeton wanted to become more open. Uh, Machen was not okay with that, and so he wrote kind of the defining book. I would say of this fundamentalist versus modernist slash liberal um, Christianity that was called, uh, forgetting it now again, Christianity and liberalism. I think that's what's called Christianity and liberalism. And his like thesis statement is that liberal Christianity is not Christianity at all. Um, and I sympathize with him because I'm not a huge fan of liberal Christianity. Um, but 
I am less of a fan of fundamentalist Christianity. And um, uh, so he advocates, he's like going after kind of Walter Rauschenbusch, who I think is a pretty great, he was, he was the guy behind the social gospel. Um, so he's advocating the social context of Christianity, which is, I think, something that Kierkegaard also would have probably um, advocated. But the social gospel, just saying that God, uh, like the kingdom of heaven should come to earth and we should change what's happening on earth. Whereas um, the fundamentalists tended to see uh, everything happening after we die. Like there's a big part of fundamentalism was also dispensationalism, the like rapture idea. Um, that was another thing that Lyman Stewart paid for was this book by William Blackstone called Jesus is coming. He also sent it out to everybody. And it was, it was kind of like the, the left behind idea. Um, we didn't have very much time. Um, Jesus is coming back soon. So it's just all about like getting as many people to pray this Dwight Moody kind of prayer. Um, that's what Christianity is about. And there's no time to do social stuff and the world is going to go, it's going to all be burned anyways. So don't worry about social stuff. Um, just try to convert people. Walter Rauschenbusch disagreed and he called his thing the social gospel. Um, what was I saying? Oh, Jay Gresham Machen. And Jay Gresham Machen then says in the introduction, it's all in the introduction of his book, um, that the social gospel is not Christianity at all. In fact, it's like the, the gospel is all about individual rights. It comes from the South, Princeton being the like Southern seminary in the North. Um, and, but then I was like, because I knew like he's writing this in 1929. Right. So I was like, that was not long after um, women got the right to vote. Um, so I wonder, was he like in favor of women having individual rights? No, he was not <laughs> like he, he advocated against women having the right to vote. And then I knew like, of course there's race things happening. So was he against black? Was he an advocate of black people having individual rights? No, he was not advocate. He was, in fact, he has this letter that he wrote to his mom about how much he hated that black people were allowed in the dorms at Princeton now. And so, so I look at his thing and I'm saying, okay, what individual rights are you talking about? And it's, it's very clear from his historical context that he's advocating for like the wealthy, the elite, which is, you know, the same thing as Cyrus McCormick, even though he disagreed with many aspects of fundamentalism, he thought that, um, they were kind of too plain. And so they needed a more um, uh, doctrinally sound, and he didn't think fundamentalism was doctrinally sound, um, but he landed on the fundamentalist side of the debate, I guess out of, because he was against, because he was for individual rights, but in, not the individual rights of women and not the individual rights of black people. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that illustrates to me the problem with uh, that states' rights thing, because it's like states' rights to what? And liberty, university, liberty for what? And it was liberty to uh, exploit other people and liberty to not think about the, the poor in spirit is what I would say. It was so it's to me, it's anti-gospel, um, even though it uses the words of Christianity, it is Christendom. To go back to Kierkegaard, it's not it's not Christianity; it's Christendom. Um, yeah, so that so was Machen because they they were basically uh, you know putting forth a theology that 
uh, I know in in our circles, this uh, the social gospel was a pejorative term, you know, to say that mm-hmm. that's it's devoid of content. But you know, then I was introduced to a word later, orthopraxy. And I'm like, oh, well, it seems like that's kind of what the social gospel is. And like, well, maybe mm-hmm. maybe you need a theological and a social gospel. Like, if you want to say that you need both of those things, that's mm-hmm. great. But like, the social gospel is a part of the gospel. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that I I think that's a big reason why I left the evangelical fundamentalist tradition is just because I didn't I saw them blasting the social gospel. I didn't see them including it. And so somehow their theology was cutting it out. Um, whereas, yeah, like I never heard of Walter Rauschenbusch. I never, and I didn't know, like Walter Rauschenbusch was a huge influence on Martin Luther King. Um, and so, yeah, but then I discovered, I guess the next part of the story is that, so from 1925 until 1949, fundamentalism kind of goes underground they just focus on their bible colleges at least that's the story that's told um i know there's some people that contest that but that's like the years like the mainline denominations became like i mean they were they were already strong like the mainline denominations were yeah they were strong um they really those mainline slash liberal christians really invested in the social sphere so they started like public schools they started a lot of public things um they were involved very involved in fdr's new deal um so they were advocating like society they were advocating for um uh like the infrastructure project big community they're advocating big community and they weren't so they weren't so particular about whether things were called christian or not they were just like we want to make the world a better place and they did but um business people you know in the tradition of cyrus mccormick jr and lyman stewart we're not huge fans of this. And um, they didn't like that the like fundamentalists or their kind of projects of maximizing profit were um, being excluded from the mainline denominations. So they started um, basically, but they, they agreed, many agreed that fundamentalism was problematic. Like it was too militant. It was too... Um, angry and so like i think one of the one of the most respectable advocates of what became evangelicalism he's kind of the the founding father of it is this guy named carl henry carl fh henry you heard of him um it was kind of from what i understand it was kind of like carl henry um this guy at gordon conwell what was his name gordon conwell seminary in boston and billy graham that kind of uh, were able to build their first, well, there was, there was fundamentalists that wanted to like regain fundamentalism, but they, they saw like Carl Henry wanted a like fundamentalist theology, but then liberal social impact, something to this effect anyways. this is So he tried to make like a middle way of what he wanted to call evangelicalism. And they kind of like, pulled from Charles Finney because Charles Finney was somebody that a lot of people agreed with, especially the non-denominational. He was an abolitionist before it was cool. He was preaching like Moody. Um, He wasn't so tied in with denominations. So they liked Charles Finney and Charles Finney, I think is like 
the the like main person behind the word evangelical um also was the there's a college that he did he start um oberlin oberlin college very kind of socially aware um and christian at least at that time and wheaton was um one of these colleges also but then getting into the weeds again but um wheaton actually ended up getting a fundamentalist president so he became fundamentalist i guess he's probably like a william jennings bryan type that was theologically conservative but wanted to maybe be so a little bit socially liberal i'm unaware exactly um but wheaton has its roots in the charles g finney is that second grade awakening i think it's the second grade awakening um and so Billy Graham, Carl Henry, and the other person whose name I'm forgetting from Boston, um, they started the National Association of Evangelicals. And Moody wanted to preach, or I mean, Graham, Billy Graham wanted to preach this kind of just simple uh, message of of Dwight Moody. I mean, I think it wasn't, he said often that he wanted to be, he wanted to revive the spirit of Dwight Moody. And um, it wasn't a particular intellectual thing. You know, Dwight Moody was not intellectual. Neither was Billy Graham. There's like a funny story that, um, that I... So he, Billy Graham has it. He actually is uh, Charles Templeton. Do you know about Charles Templeton? No. He was, him and Billy Graham were buddies. And they were the first people to get hired by Youth for Christ in the 40s. It was, we also have to remember that this was the time of World War II. So like people were really desperate for people to like to hear messages. It's also the time of C.S. Lewis. Like C.S. Lewis is on the radio in London. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton are touring the United States, like giving talks to people and kind of advocating some morality um, during the war against the Nazis. And um, so Charles Templeton's from Canada, Billy Graham's from North Carolina and they're charismatic fun engaging you know have good music they have like a big production kind of thing that shows up but neither graham nor templeton is educated and they're starting they're becoming world tour preachers and they're starting to have like behind the scenes talks like uh we're about to speak to ten thousand people and like we have a little bit of doubt we have got some questions about what we're about to say and so templeton is actually like i just got into princeton billy let's go to princeton and Billy Graham was like, that would be awesome, but I'm the president of Northwest Bible College. Even though like I don't really have like a formal seminary training, I haven't dealt with this like historical criticism thing. I don't really know. Like he's like, so Billy says, let's go to Oxford. Let's go to Oxford. Then like that's prestigious enough that it wouldn't like conflict with my being the president of Northwest Bible College. But Templeton is already in Princeton Seminary. And so um, Templeton goes and Billy Graham doesn't. And um, they actually meet up again in Southern California where I used to go to summer camp, a place called Forest Home. And they're at like a little conference. It was like one year into Templeton's time at Princeton. And uh, Templeton's talking about all the like historical stuff that he's learning. And Billy's like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is big you know if 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 like the virgin birth idea if if it's just signaling if it shouldn't be face value interpreted then what else am i wrong about 
and that he's having this question and then he he's he writes in his first authorized biography that he was on a late night walk in the woods and he's like wrestling with this and he's supposed to give a big conference in los angeles coming up and he's like i don't know if i can do it conflicted and he's like and then i had the thought that um how's it go he's like i don't know how a brown cow can eat green grass and produce white milk but i drink it therefore i'm gonna preach the bible the way i know to preach because it works you know kierkegaardian leap of faith he he must be a kierkegaard (laughs) fan (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and so he's like you know what i'm fully committed he goes to los angeles he preaches uh, radio personality gets converted and and then um what was his name um the guy behind yellow J- journalism william randolph hearst yellow german is, uh, journalism is like a term for um like shady journalism not not particularly into you know aware but like propaganda i i, I suppose maybe not full propaganda but the guy who's most known for yellow journal- journalism william randolph hearst sends a note out to all his newspapers puff graham two words puff graham and so then the next day billy graham is everywhere the los angeles crusade just like explodes and then now evangelicalism is like on the scene and billy graham is like this savior it launches him into a meeting with first harry truman but he kind of blows it with harry truman he like is not confidential about their conversation so Truman has not has not very many good things to say about um, Billy Graham, but Dwight Eisenhower loves Billy Graham and thinks that he needs a Christian, a, a God component, specifically a Christian component to his um, campaign to contrast with the Soviet Union. And so he says, all right, Billy, like you're in, I'm going to get baptized by you. So he's the first president to get baptized. And Dwight Eisenhower, by the way, is named Dwight because of Dwight Moody. He's named Dwight after Dwight Moody. His mom chooses that. And um, so Eisenhower then adds in God we trust to money and under God to pledge the Pledge of Allegiance in the 50s. And it's after the war. Economics is going great. And so like even like liberal people, they're like, that's a great idea. You know, there's no there's no um, contest to that. Yeah. And, and they started presidential prayer breakfast, too. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, vice president, if I'm remembering right, at least part of the cabinet was a guy named Richard Nixon. And Billy Graham gets like really connected with Richard Nixon, like really likes him. But Billy Graham is also a Democrat. Um, He's from the South and Eisenhower's Republican, but he kind of just decides like it doesn't matter that much, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whatever. But he never changed his uh, his his uh, voter registration. So he was Democrat till the day he died, actually. Um, or, you know, I don't know. He, he never became a Republican. Let's just say that. Um, and he, I don't think that he ever officially left the Democrat. He's also good friends with Lyndon Johnson. Um, but every president since Eisenhower, Eisenhower to Obama, basically had. Uh, had Billy Graham as part of his kind of King's court. Like um, even Obama like had several meetings with Billy Graham and like they prayed together and did all kinds of things together. Um, Clinton, of course, uh, as well. Um, 
Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the story of Billy Graham, but then also what you don't, what I, what I didn't realize is that Billy Graham was also the same time as Martin Luther King. And, uh, he was cordial with Martin Luther King and especially in the beginning, he invited Martin Luther King to, to pray at one of his, um, uh, crusades up in New York city and Martin Luther King did. And it was a big problem for, uh, the fundamentalists, they didn't like, you know, they, Billy Graham wasn't militant enough for, for them, even though he pretty much shared their theology. Um, he was not aggressive enough and he got kicked out of Pensacola Bible college way back in the day. Um, Billy Graham. Um, but then where did he finish? I can't remember where he finished. He did do a, like a degree in like sociology or anthropology or something like that. But, um, I don't know that he had any academic training beyond that. It was from a Bible college, if I remember right. Yeah, I know. I just actually listened to Fundamentalist You because you had you had it recommended, and I was I thought it would be good prep. I, I'm pretty sure he was at Bob Jones at one point because um, it talks about how Bob Jones wanted, I think, wanted to to have him preach um, before he got yes. big. Yes, yes. Maybe that's when I'm. It's not Pensacola. It was Bob Jones. I think that he got kicked out of. Or did he? I don't know. I but it was so early in, in Billy Graham's process that I wouldn't put so much weight on it. Just that, like, that's what he comes from. In fact, the per, the place where he got saved was like a big tent revival um, with like a very racist um, preacher. I can't remember that guy's name, but you can look up like how did Billy Graham get saved, and it was at a big tent revival with a like extremely racist person that he. He later tried to distance himself from, but I mean, the theology is the same, you know, just like, and Billy Graham had like some moments where, oh, he like took down the rope separating the white and black people. But then he also had moments where he um, like kept the ropes up and went to like, I think it was in Dallas that he like one of the biggest segregationists, like he spoke at the church and, you know, took pictures with this, with this guy. Um, And then when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that little black children will hold hands and play with little white children. Billy Graham responded with only when Christ comes again, will little black children, little white children play play together. Um, And he wrote like opinion pieces saying that Martin Luther King needs to put the brakes on. Um, What else did he do? He he did a lot. Um, Basically. Oh, he, he said, Oh yeah, he has his, his crusades well i have legal crusades in stadiums so you know he has his protests well i have legal protests in in stadiums um yeah it reminds me a little bit of uh you know falwell's ministers and marchers um where you know he's kind of railing against like no we don't we don't do that sort of thing like we we have our church and we you know we don't we don't kind of delve into those politics and then of course you know a little bit later, he does a complete 180. But um, yeah, yeah, this is definitely an interesting time. Uh, I I really like Kevin Cruz's book, uh, One Nation Under God, for this time period. I think that was the first evangelical one that I I uh, really looked at, and I was like, oh man, there's a whole lot more. Like this is this is going to uncover a whole lot. Uh, and so I've read quite a bit since then. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it's just, uh, yeah, a, a not so comfortable period to look at if you're an evangelical. 
Yeah, and that, that was the thing that I kind of, I guess I kept uncovering was just that, and especially like the Southern Baptists are easy to kind of rail against because they were on the wrong side. And actually they had, they've like fully admitted it in 2018 that they were on the wrong side of basically every justice movement that has ever occurred. And then, so for me, that's like, well, is there, is it possible that you're advocating a Christendom and not Christianity? Um, is it possible that you're like this theology that you're advocating is, is actually antichrist um, and that you've turned Christ into a figure that he's not, you know, that Kierkegaard talks about saying like the Christ that says, come and follow me is a quite different version uh, as opposed to, and not that like liberal Christianity is much better, but um uh, I mean, I, I, I just, I guess I, I advocate more, more of the social gospel things. And it's kind of like about the fruit. I think, you know, Jesus talks about, you'll know them by their fruit. Uh, first John says, you will, is it first John? It says, you'll, they will know we are Christians by our love. Um, uh, yeah, for, I mean, first John talks a ton about love. Uh, I'm not sure if that's where it is. I know Jesus in the gospel says that they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Yeah, so that that's the Gospel of John then. Um, um, but yeah, so I like by their fruit you will know them, and I just don't think the fruit of the Southern Baptist Convention is very good, and I don't think the fruit, while there is a lot of charity, there's not that much justice um, in the in the in the like post fundamentalist evangelical tradition. Like I would I would keep Charles Finney out of it, um, though. Places like Wheaton College, um, they try to connect themselves to the Charles Finney Second Great Awakening kind of a thing. And I think that um, that version, that's like Mark Knoll. Do you know Mark Knoll? I think he tries to connect himself to that version of evangelical as opposed to the like fundamentalist version of evangelical. But they've gotten so mixed up and it, um, it's hard to separate that Second Great Awakening evangelicalism from the evangelicalism that we see today. I think that's uh, you identified something there that's that's been really difficult for me um because you know if something's good it should it should lead to good results um and i i think what what a lot of people in my group the you know, whatever evangelicals i think what they often try to do is they look back at all of those bad social decisions moral decisions and they they view them as individual instances of ah we got that one wrong ah we got that one wrong, whereas I think what Kierkegaard helps me to do is he looks at Christendom and a history of bad decisions as systematic, and and I mean just look at today, uh, my group by and large you know if you take the eighty so percent that voted for trump and if it if they're representative of this type of kind of thinking they can't accept something like systemic racism like that just does not compute for them and so of course our history of of bad results isn't systemic it's just well they made they made individual bad decisions mm -hmm. and yeah when i looked at the history i just i saw that excuse over and over and over and i was just like i I can't like stay in this. And uh, so like, I, I, I'm sort of part of the Quakers now. Um, 
And I just went to a Quaker meeting in San Diego last weekend. And I think, I think I told them like, yeah, like I want to be a part of this because you, y'all have been on the right side of history for your entire history. Um, and, and that's not something I could say about like the churches that I grew up in. Um, yeah, I, uh, side note, I actually interviewed a, a Quaker historian, uh, in my season on nonviolent action. Cause there's this, there's this Quaker guy called, named Benjamin Lay, who is like oh, ama- yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. but she kind of burst my bubble cause she was like, well, it wasn't, it wasn't always so clear. You know, these Quakers were fighting with those Quakers and this, and I was like, okay, well, they're still at least really good. You know, they might not be yeah. perfect and, and they, yeah. they more than other people self-correct. It seemed it's like, okay, you, you had a bunch of people get into power who owned slaves, but you, you remedied that, you know, maybe it took you 50 or hundred years, which is a long time to enslave people, but you had people in your community pushing back against it the whole time. And when you did free your slaves, you compensated them back pay. Wow. I mean, that's. That's pretty amazing. So yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. I think I think as a group they do a good job. Yeah. So yeah, then I'm interested, like, okay, what's the like Quaker theology? Like this, you know, what motivated Benjamin Lay to I think he went around like wearing almost no clothes in like the middle of winter and he would stand outside the Quaker meeting and they'd be like, What's what's the matter with you? What are you doing? He's like, this is what the slave with the African people have to deal with in these free United States. You know, you just give these talks of the while being basically naked in in the cold or something something like this i, I forget but just yeah. a, and they were on on the wrong side of the government over and over and over like the government persecuted them i found out that i had i have a distant relative who was a quaker living in virginia and like the virginia colonies and he got ran out with the other quakers because i think they were protesting slavery or something or treatment of native americans and so they had to like flee to to Maryland, um, the southeast part of Maryland, kind of like a swampy area where nobody really wanted to live, uh, from what I understand. But a bunch of Quakers moved there because they were going to get killed if they stayed in Virginia. Yeah, um, I mean, if you look at Native American relations with with the Quakers before, uh, I mean, for a while until other yeah. people started to come in, like they had really peaceful. Um, time with native americans um and you know I, i've just been amazed because i don't hear anything of quakers today i associate them with abolition but then it's like well they kind of died out like the shakers and um mm-hmm. but i was listening to a podcast called city of refuge which is you know, just a like 10 episode series on uh, this guy from france this nonviolent guy from france um who um, who ended up with his village like saving a couple thousand uh, Jews by hiding them, and um, he at one point in the in the series, I think he's imprisoned or somebody from his community's imprisoned, and they run into like a Quaker smuggler who's associated with the Friends Association, and it's like good Quakers when the U.S. is keeping Jews out and nobody supposedly knows about the Holocaust, the Quakers know what's going on, and they're over there helping out. You're like holy holy crap, like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just amazing what they do i think it was there's there was some things that i found at the very end of my thesis research that i couldn't follow up on because i was like i have to finish and submit this thing but one of them was ida b wells talking about dwight moody 
and how she's like Dwight Moody is no Quaker like he said she says that like pretty um and her being like an advocate for African-American people in the reconstruction period um African-American herself um yeah she's like Dwight Moody never did anything to help us um but the Quakers did and so she kind of like points out this like two versions of Christianity that I think that I, th- I would say like African people tend to be well like aware of it um, African Americans especially like like Frederick Douglass like Ida B. Wells because they were the ones who were getting the short end of the stick from the Christendom people so while the language was enough for some people like many white people it wasn't enough for African American people in the 1800s so they were able to point out slave only Christianity is not Christianity yeah, well, and that's um, that's because the the Christianity that slaveholding Christianity preserved was really com- would have been really comfortable for somebody like me, and so of yeah. course, it, of course, it seems good because I'm I'm not on the the receiving end of that stick. Yeah, and then I, I think about Jesus' statement again. I came to bring good news to the poor. Who was the poor at that time period? It was it was African Americans. It was Native Americans. Were they bringing good news? To those people, no, they were bringing bad news. George Whitfield brought bad news to African American people. Like, sorry, no liberation for you. Um, so then, that kind of disqualifies the gospel. His gospel for me. I mean, well, and and yeah, that, yeah that's where Kierkegaard again is is helpful for me, or where I have hope in looking at people like Kierkegaard, who are true prophets. And that's because when you look at all this bad fruit, which seems like a a pretty long series of bad fruit and and unredeemed bad fruit, it's not like uh, people recognize their mistakes and repent and turn, which would be one thing. But it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, even still today, it with the far right just just refusing, refusing to turn. Um, Mm -hmm. But with Kierkegaard, so the question that I end up having is, okay, well, something's bad here. Is it Christianity? Is it the gospel? And I think Kirk, I don't think that is because I think Jesus is so right and so beautiful and and so amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So Kierkegaard highlights the thing that I think it is, which is is yeah. Christianity. And I don't want to throw out Christianity. I don't want to throw out Jesus, but I sure do want to throw out Christendom. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and and I think no one since Kierkegaard, at least in like the you know uh, academic philosophy, even though Kierkegaard was not academic philosopher, um, you know, few were in the nineteenth century. Um, I guess there hasn't been someone respected in the way that he's respected by like secular people, I suppose. Um, since him, I mean, maybe you could go to like. Alvin plan together. I, I just think that there's like kind of a time period. Feuerbach said the same thing also. He's like, Christianity has long since vanished from the earth. There's, you know, whatever is going around calling itself Christianity is not, it's not Christianity. Um, and so I think Kierkegaard, it's almost like like he, him saying Christianity no longer exists is a lot like Nietzsche saying God is dead. You know? Um Nisha also said only where there are tombs can there be resurrection. So I kind of think that he's like allowing the possibility that like God could resurrect um, 
but the tr- the Christianity that's being preached around him, he's like, this is not it. He has, he, there is a quote even of, of him. Uh, I had it. I just sent it to somebody. So I wonder if it's here, but he says, he talks about like that. Um, Christianity has so turned from its, from its origin and that it's sanctifying all the things that Christ advocated or it's sanctifying all the things that the bringer of glad tidings uh, held beneath him, like empire, like um, power and uh, exploitation. He says, all of this is a fist in the eye. Oh, in what an eye of the gospel. That's Nietzsche talking. And I was just shocked. That's in the Antichrist, even like the, the book, the Antichrist. Um, and is is he speaking as himself there? Or is he speaking from like a, another perspective? Um, he's speaking as himself. The uh, this this Nietzsche thing. I'm trying to like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of like thus spoke spoke uh, Zarathustra. You know, he yeah. he's not speaking from himself. He's kind of you know various characters are speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So the quote is that mankind should fall on its knees before the opposite of what was the origin, the meaning, the right of the gospel, that it should have sanctified in the concept church precisely what the bringer of glad tidings regarded as beneath him, behind him. It is a fist in the eye. Oh, and what an eye of the gospel. Friedrich Nietzsche, the end of his life. That's like one of the last things he wrote. So, so, so do you think... Do you think people just because I again I'm I'm like a novice when it comes to philosophy, so it's it's really easy to read the most popular things or to to take quotes and to kind of form your ideas about an individual's thoughts. For me, I I really didn't like Nietzsche because it it seemed like he was against altruism. It seemed like thinking about other people was weakness, um, mm-hmm. and he, you know, the power was, was something that he elevated and I just, that didn't seem like a good thing. I understand why he says mm-hmm. God is dead. I, I get that. And I don't fault him for that, but mm-hmm. the moral ethic that I perceive from Nietzsche just doesn't resonate at all with me. So do you think that that's a, a mischaracterization that a lot of people have of him and maybe there were more Christian elements underneath or yeah, how do you explain that? Yeah, there's um so Nietzsche's sister was a Nazi and Nietzsche went crazy in 1890. So he wrote the Antichrist in 1889 and he lived 10 years of like basically not talking to people and his brain just didn't work anymore. So from 1890 to 1900 when he died he was like in a vegetative state, basically. And his sister kept kept him alive. His sister pulled a whole bunch of his writings together and put them into a book called The Will to Power and gave that to Adolf Hitler. And Hitler loved The Will to Power, which is kind of like a Machiavellian. Um, well, I don't know that he loved it, loved it. I don't think it was like the most important thing, but he like endorsed it and said, this is a, this is a good text. It was, I mean, I feel like, it's it wouldn't be so different from like the self-help in general um of today which it's i also think of abraham and nietzsche in similar capacities like the the biblical abraham in that abraham left 
the God of his fathers to advocate something new. And that was definitely what Nietzsche was about. He was about leaving the Christianity that he came from and looking for this Ubermensch, right? This person. And often he would say like, Christ is the closest thing to an Ubermensch that we have, but his tradition was co-opted. So he wasn't powerful enough. So then he advocates, you know, for this, these kind of powerful things. Um, and he has not great things to say about women, not great things to say about Jewish people. Um, so I think that especially if you're like aware of that kind of stuff, but the, the reception of G, uh, of Nietzsche as, um, through the will to power is kind of a creation of his Nazi sister. It's like a editing of his Nazi sister, which I mean, I don't know that the preface to that book, like acknowledges this kind of, that kind of thing, or if it's just printed. Um, I assume the newer copies are like acknowledged that way. There's a guy named Walter Kaufman from Princeton. Uh, Princeton University, who kind of after World War II, he he put Nietzsche in a different perspective, but not everybody, you know, is aware that their perspective comes more from Nietzsche's sister than from Walter Kaufman. Tillich, Paul Tillich was really influenced by Nietzsche, but I also think Nietzsche, he didn't get there. Like he wanted something new, he didn't get there. So then you have to look at the people around um, who like Tillich, who read Nietzsche as a destroyer of Christianity, of Christendom. But then he's like, okay, we need like a, we need, we need to keep going because we can't just be will to power individuals. Um, and I don't think Nietzsche, the Antichrist is supposed to be the second book in a seven volume series. But that was the last thing he wrote because he went crazy not long after that. Hmm. So yeah, I'll have to rethink about that, even if I end up disagreeing with a lot of what Nietzsche, uh, you know, his moral ethic and stuff, uh, or yeah. what he what he thinks about Jesus. Uh, if he's like Kierkegaard at all in, in terms of what he destroys, I, I can respect that. Yeah, and I, and I would say, like, you know, go with what you like more, you know, which is probably the Kierkegaard thing. Like, I would probably advocate attack upon Christendom rather than the Antichrist. But I would say, like, hey, kind of similar just like Nietzsche doesn't want to use the Christian language Kierkegaard does want to use the Christian language um to rebuild something uh but you know it's not and like atheists hate my view of Nietzsche as well he was a big reader of Ralph Waldo Emerson though and so Emerson is kind of like Kierkegaard in that he doesn't abandon theology I guess um Emerson sort of abandons Christianity, sort of, but not theology. He he's like a he becomes kind of more of a Spinozist. He he always appreciates Christ, of course, but um, but Emerson's like a Nietzsche that's a that's like a less militant Nietzsche, less obviously militant anyway. I think the people at the Harvard Divinity School definitely perceived Emerson as very militant. They banned him from campus for 30 years so um they perceived him as well <laughs> uh, so i want to uh you know we're we're approaching modernity here to where we are today um mm -hmm. and and uh there's one other person that i want to touch on that i think you have some insight into that that maybe helps us to understand christendom 
and modernity and evangelicals, and that would be Ronald Reagan. Um, mm. <laughs> so I know you you've had some experiences in South and Central America, and um, uh, especially talking about liberation theology and um, some of what was going on down there and assassinations and U.S. involvement and uh, all that stuff. Wherever you want to take that and wherever you want to start, I'd love for you to, to maybe talk about that. Yeah, I think probably the first like spark for me in that context was I uh, went down to Nicaragua. I had a friend who bought a little piece of land there, very cheap, right on the beach. And we built a little house. And so I spent a month working on this little house. And then um, the second month, I kind of just toured around. And I went to a place called Esteli in the north of Nicaragua, the mountain mountains. And, and weirdly, um, everywhere, I kept seeing these signs that, um, that uh, there were political signs. And, and it just said Christian, you know, in Spanish. So it was like, Christiana, I think, and then socialista, solidaria, like single words, Christian, socialist, solidarity, like political people. And I'm like, uh, time out. You cannot be a Christian and a socialist at the same time. That is, they're mutually exclusive. But I'm like, there it is right there. And um, I was just weirded out, you know, like my brain, my history, my awareness, my inheritance, intellectual inherited awareness says this can't be. Um, and so I went and stayed with these people in the mountains of Nicaragua, just the kindest people. I was, I was, had just randomly met a Jewish guy, um, like kind of secular Jewish. I don't know that he was like really practicing, but he's from Israel and another woman from the Netherlands. So the three of us were kind of like decided to do some of the tour things together. And, um, we showed up to these people's house and they had like a very, it was so much, it was just like the Shire. It was beautiful. Um, oh, my headphones are going to die. So we'll change to a different sound. Let me, uh, I'll just, um, can you hear me? Yeah, it works great. Okay. So staying in this like place, like the Shire and, uh, they, they ask, you know, where, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from, uh, I'm from California. I'm from the U S and they're like, oh, like so many people would be like they would say oh we know that things have changed since ronald reagan like so we're happy that you're here you know and i was kind of like what we know that uh you know the u.s is not everybody is like ronald reagan in the u.s so we're happy that you're here and i was kind of like where did this come from like what the heck and um, and so I got to talking to them and realized that these people in the mountains were like literally Christian socialists. And they talked about both aspects of that perspective for them. And he's like, he's like, yeah, we're, you know, we're socialists. Like I, I run the co-op here, the farms, we take our food to the co-op and then, and it gets distributed amongst the community and, you know. So obviously, I mean, I'm a socialist and that, so he's like, and that's why like Ronald Reagan was paying the Contras to come in here and terrorize us for the whole decade of the eighties. And I was like, what? I never heard that. And then uh, they had, I mean, 
they were so fascinated by my companion, the, the, the Jewish guy that I was with. They're like, oh my goodness, you're from Israel, the land of the Bible. They're like, tell us everything about, about this. So like for like three nights, every dinner, they were just, they were so thrilled to hear about the land of the Bible from, from this guy. And he would just talk about, yeah, yeah, you know, like this area, Galilee region and like down in Jerusalem. And this is where like Isaiah would have lived. And this is where like Amos was and, you know, the Torah, this and the Torah, that. And they were enthralled by this guy. So it was like very clear to me that their Christianity was not manufactured. Um, And then their like socialism, it was really for them was all about about cooperative living and they lived in this mountainous region um and their their place was it was not like a poverty kind of situation like mexico or something that i've been in before it was though they only had a limited amount of electricity um but it was very well taken care of and they were like oh yeah like all my all my children are are they have phds in like agriculture and they live like in costa rica or other parts of nicaragua and um and he's like but yeah of course like you know ronald reagan was after me in the in the 80s um not like you know there was no personal thing but he's like we had to live in in the forest and then he showed me he's like yeah i was shot here in the arm by uh one of the the contras and we basically lived in the forest we would come back here for time periods but we never knew when the contras were going to come and attack us um basically right-wing fascists from honduras were paid by the Reagan administration and the Carter administration. Um, and before that, because the US was was on the wrong side of this thing, they liked the dictator Somoza and, um, and the socialists, basically Christian socialists, um, liber, uh, liberation theologians um, advocated against the, the fascist dictators like Somoza throughout all of Latin America. But, um, but yeah, like the big story is like this is this Catholic priest named Oscar Romero. He's probably like the most famous of the liberation theologians in this context anyways. Um, and he was in El Salvador advocating against the U.S. supported fascism. And the U.S. liked it because it was kind of like Saudi Arabia. Like we picked a few families to make very wealthy and then they would provide us with resources cheap and in the way we wanted it. So in, in Latin America, it was like a lot of fruit. It was uh, a lot of beef. It was, um, it was just really cheap for us, but we made a few people very wealthy, like the Somozas and the Somozas kept Nicaragua in this, like basically Lord and surf uh, arrangement. But we liked that because it was, it was really cheap for us. And um, the liberation theologians started to see that and they were like, uh, this is really problematic, the way that people are being treated by the Somozas. And so we're actually going to advocate for the people against the Somozas. And the U.S. didn't like that. So there were many different um, groups of people like this particular one is called the Atlacatl Battalion. And they went to North Carolina to get trained the first thing that they did when they got back from North Carolina is they went to Oscar Romero's church and shot and killed him. Um, so it's not, it's not like, you know, the U S are necessarily, I mean, we don't know, but the U S isn't necessarily saying, okay, Hey, you send us a hit squad. We'll train them. But we know the types of people that they're sending us and we know what they're going to do with the, 
with what we train them to do. Yeah. And I, I read into it more because obviously I'm like, wow, Reagan is like the best president of the 20th century as far as like the people I know are concerned. And, uh, and so I was very confused uh, to find out about this and then to find out that basically the way we think of Hitler is the way they think of Reagan because of what he did in Latin America. And I was like, this was again, like, well, I thought I was, you know, against, I thought I was like small government or I thought I was a Christian but I thought Reagan was a Christian. I thought like, um, but then come to find out that like what he did in Latin America in particular was, was really horrific. Um, and he did it even totally illegally. Like, I think that it was something with the money, like he couldn't. The Iran Contra. Yeah. Yeah. Iran Contra. So Iran, he sold weapons to Iran and then the money went directly to the Contras, which was in Honduras to fund terrorizing the Nicaraguans. Yeah. And, and this also so gets, this. yeah, this also gets into, um, you know, there was the, uh, there's the conspiracy that involved the CIA allowing crack to, to continue so that they could get money to funnel to the Contras because they couldn't obtain that money through the government anymore. And so the crack epidemic um, was at least in part a result of, of CIA, maybe not, conspiring with drug dealers but at least looking the other way mm -hmm. and like i first heard noam chomsky talk about it concisely and he just said liberation theology was an attempt to bring the gospels back into christianity so like you know we might say that it's a kierkegaardian thing again like trying to reintroduce christianity to christendom that's what liberation theology was but he's like but you can't have that um, Christianity, as it was no, as it has been known in the West, is a is the is the theology of of the wealth of the wealthy. It was the theology of Ronald Reagan, the theology of Cyrus McCormick and Donald Trump. It's not the theology of the poor. Like you can't like advocate for the slaves. You can't advocate for the 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 people being enslaved in Nicaragua in the in the eighties. So he's like, so of course we crushed it. Like we violently repressed it, and. I, you know, this was just wild because I was thinking, oh, my gosh, the government is suppressing Christianity. But I have a I have been following Christendom. I've not been following Christianity. Yeah, so I'm getting yeah. it. Yeah, I'm getting it from Christendom. I'm not getting it from Christianity. Well, yeah, it's like you, our government. Oh, a lot of uh, evangelicals have this uh, martyrdom complex, this persecution complex. And it's like when you study history, you learn that well, it's, it's your government, like our government, that has actually been persecuting Christians just out there to secure my Christendom, like my version of Christianity and my comfort. Mm -hmm. But also like, you know, we're worried about people like the government coming into my home and shooting me or something you know like what the government's going to come in here and and take my kids from me guess what's been happening to black people for like forever you know like brianna taylor was just like a few years ago the government a police officer came in there and shot her killed her and then said oh sorry like wrong wrong apartment you know so like and like or philando castile you know like the government 
he said, I have a gun in my apartment, in my, in my glove box. And then the guy pulled out and killed Philando Castile for, for no reason other than the police officer was scared or something, but this is so like the government is coming and killing people. It's just not coming and killing white people or what's the uh, Dylan roof went to uh, African Methodist Episcopal church in what uh, in North Carolina, I think Dylan roof, he shot up a prayer meeting, but we don't think of that as like Christian persecution, but like, I never, how come I didn't hear about that Christian persecution a guy came in and shot up a church and, but it's not a big deal. Or like in the 1960s, uh, the Birmingham, I think it was Baptist, Birmingham Baptist. It was, it was American Baptist. It was black people and white Christians went and blew up a church killing four little girls. Was it Birmingham? Montgomery? I forget. I think it was Birmingham. Uh, I I think, yeah, I don't remember exactly. During Sunday school, they killed four little girls. And that's not considered like Christian persecution. How come I never heard about that in Voice of the Martyrs? You know, yeah, it reminds me of uh, Cone, uh, James Cone's Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is mm-hmm. a really profound book. But I think that that hits at exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So all the things that I was like concerned the government might come and do, they've been doing for the history of the United States. Well, well and that's internally. But the people that you're talking to in Nicaragua, your government was yeah. going and doing that overseas or at least supporting that Mm -hmm. yeah i'm trying to think well i mean we did do like a direct intervention in chile i think um where there was a democratically elected socialist leader and we went in and and took him out was it it was uh, salvador allende yeah and then yeah we installed the right-wing person um what was it augusto pinochet i think yeah well, and I mean, um, Nicaragua was also, they were invaded in like 1910 or something, I believe. So there was, there was U.S. domination. I think we were in country for like 20 years. Same time we were in country, uh, with, uh, Haiti. Yeah, we were in Haiti from like 1915 to 1934 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're in all of these countries and yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's when you read into it, it's, it's indefensible. And it was largely the Christians, the quote unquote Christians, the Ronald Reagans. I mean, well, also Ronald Reagan, I, you know, he was never, I don't know. Was he actually a Christian? I I think that like, now that I've read about him, um, I don't know that he he was a movie star. Yeah. He just, I think he catered to Christians and, you know, used the, the right lingo and stuff. He, he started his campaign at a place. It was, it was this really random place in the South. Philadelphia. Um, no, it wasn't Philadelphia. I'm trying to think, but it was a place where they, the, they, this community like lynched people. And then the federal government came in and said, we're going to prosecute this because the local police wouldn't do it. And, and then that was a big like state's rights thing. Because they're like, no, 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 you can't. The federal government can't come in here and like tell tell us what to do. And so the state's right. So then Ronald Reagan started this. I, I want to say, uh, and it might have been like at one of his campaigns or something, but I was like the overt racism of this. Um, Reagan, state's rights. Oh, 
Beach. Yeah, I'm playing up Neshoba, Neshoba County. Yeah, Neshoba County. It's it is so weird to choose Neshoba County, but it was it was the site of the 1964 murders of Cheney, Good, Goodman, and Schwerner, um, which was like an unprosecuted racial thing. Um, and so Reagan went there to say, like, I'm I'm an advocate of states' rights. And it's like, it's just pure, pure racism. Um, and like of the worst kind. Um, and it's not even, it's like a place that you wouldn't go. It's a small town. It's not um like it would make sense to me if it was like Los Angeles or something like that, you know, or like a big a big city where there's a lot of support, but it's it's it was to signal to the racists of of the South, especially because they I think they knew what Neshoba County was about. Um, but uh, but other people, you know, but the we chose we chose not to. And I I think about that a lot with regards to the dominant Christianity in the United States. Um that it chooses ignorance very often like that's what the that's what the plain reading of scripture of Dwight Moody was about he didn't want the social historical or literary perspective he wanted his own interpretation which is so wild because I'm you know we heard it all the time that like this is objective and liberals are just they you know the bible can mean whatever they want it to mean and I'm like now that I've looked through history I'm like we are describing ourselves. We are the ones who read this and made it into whatever we wanted it to be. Yeah, we no, are I, the ones in cancel culture. Uh, you know? I think that's a good observation that that we so often describe ourselves. Um, you know, uh, it it clicked for me there where you say that you know things are objective, and then you realize, well, yeah, your your interpretation is supposedly objective. Or um, for me, in regard to the big one for me was in the 2016 election. I had been on a high horse against um, moral relativism. Like moral relativism just doesn't make any sense. And then 2016 happens and I'm like, oh my gosh, all of you are moral relativists. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I was looking for it out there and, and yeah. I was blindsided by it in my own community. But uh, yeah, cancel culture. You you look at all of the things um, that that we are can that that uh, evangelicals are canceling. It's insane, and yeah, we've we've done that forever. Um, mm -hmm. Being cancel culture, we describe ourselves, and we just don't see it. Uh, like I think you you said, we choose ignorance. I I wouldn't say that we don't see it. I think we choose it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like there are prophets amongst us, you know, like a, like a Martin Luther King. I think he was saying some very relevant things about race. And, and then he was saying some very relevant things about poverty and things about the Vietnam War. And people did not want to hear it because, it, you know, it's so like Daniel Berrigan, a, a radical Catholic priest, said, he said, um the poor tell us who we are like the nicaraguan people they tell us who we are the the african-american slave tells us who we are and the prophets tell us who we can be you know like a frederick Douglass, like a kierkegaard like a they tell us who we can be so we hide the poor and we kill the prophets 
over and over again. We do this over and over again. Um, which is hard for me now. This is like where I'm personally at. I think about all the time. That's how do I advocate this path that everybody wants to hide, that everybody wants to kill? Like people do not, how do you advocate for um, people who don't have healthcare and, or people who grew up in a place where they weren't able to like be a part of society really, you know, they um, didn't get the education they needed to have a good job. Um, are not networked well enough to have a good job, um, grew up, how do you advocate for that? Because I, I think it kind of is, it's like a, it's a failing project in a way. Um, Cornell West all, often says, um, studying philosophy is really about learning how to die daily, which is also like a Christian thing. I think, you know, Jesus talks about taking up your cross and dying or Romans 12 being a living sacrifice, a thing that dies over and over. Is that what these, I mean, and I kind of think it's about like learning that we're going to fail over and over and over before we succeed. There were a lot of proto Martin Luther Kings and Martin Luther King himself was killed. I think Kierkegaard is one of these, one of these proto people. And he, he lived a life that was not glamorous. Um, it looked, I mean, nobody read his stuff. He didn't have, he didn't have like, he was rediscovered later. You know, he died in obscurity. Um, but that's hard. And it's hard to like, also be like chipper and happy and optimist and like, hey, want to, you know, be a part of this like justice movement. Um, but it's also Paul. <laughs> Paul, you know, this, I heard this funny thing about St. Paul, um, who, uh, Paul of the New Testament that he's like yeah I had a successful career you know I was um I was involved in like the the higher levels of Jewish thought and um and then I met this guy Jesus on the road one day I went blind for three days and then um you know I was about to go kill Christians but then I decided um to be one of them and so now um I've been uh subjected to the lash you know the the 40 lashes minus one I got shipwrecked um people want me dead. I don't have you know money anymore. And you too can have the same Jesus. If you, if you <laughs> like, it's not a glamorous thing. Um, it's not, Jesus is not speaking from glory. Like Kierkegaard said, he's not, he's not part of the big wealthy church saying, come and follow me. He's, he's basically the, you know, the homeless ex carpenter washed up rabbi saying come and follow me i don't have a place you know this foxes have holes and birds have their nests but this son of man has no place to lay his head that's a jesus thing you know and so it's it just makes it hard you know um so that's that's the question i'm asking right now is like how do you actually advocate this thing that people don't want and Christian people, maybe even the most, don't want. They want the Christendom. They don't want the the Christ. Yeah, I think that's where you know Kierkegaard, whatever his ideal was, he had something, something that he latched onto that was able to to drive him. And for me, that's um, 
I mean, yeah, Jesus, but I'm trying to think something more, more tangible that, that people who aren't Christians might understand. I guess for, for me, when I see the, where this other morality leads, like where consequentialism leads, um, I mean, for, this is why I wanted to do this season on propaganda and conspiracy, because I recognized that I was propagandized and everybody around me is propagandized in my evangelical circles. I'm still propagandized, just hopefully I'm, I'm becoming more aware of it and able to, to fight it a little bit better. But when you start just digging in historically, like far back, but also even you don't even need to go far back. You can just go, like you said, back to Ronald Reagan. You can go back five years and um, just recognizing all of the death and destruction and injustice and oppression um, that, that that consequentialism and, and other moral ethics lead to for other people, even if not yourself, is just, is just horrendous. And, and I think you need that historical look because, like you said, okay, Kierkegaard died in obscurity. He, he could have come to the end of his life and said, everything I did was worthless, right? By consequentialist standards, he's a loser. He misses out. I think the, the, your Nietzsche quote about, um, you know, where there are tombs, there are resurrections. I think that's what a dying to self, I kind of, I kind of view as doing where it's maybe I die in obscurity, but if what I have to say is good and valuable and God can use that, then he will use that. My job is to hold on to the ideal and pursue that and let God, let God take control of that because you look at consequentialists like, um, you know, Whitfield. Okay. We, we've got evangelicals who are still upholding him, but now we've got a lot of people who are saying no down, down with Whitfield. Like we've got plenty of other good people that we can go to, but his legacy isn't going to last because of the moral compromises that he made. Whereas somebody like Kierkegaard who dies in obscurity is going to be remembered. And, um, I don't know if that makes yeah, we, sense. We, I was gonna say, we don't remember the Roman empire. We re remember Jesus, you know, Jesus's story is much better than the Roman emperor empire story. Um, and it's the tradition that I want to be a part of. I think of that song all the time. Uh, Oh, when the slit, uh, when the saints go marching in, Oh Lord, I want to be in the number when the saints go marching in. So I do want to be on that right side of history. I do want to, um, be part of the prophetic tradition, you know, um, but it's, it's hard, you know, and yeah, it's just, it's just hard. And it's, and it's, but that's also why, you know, the prophets like, uh, Elijah, you know, after his big moment, the pro against the prophets of Baal, um, he's like super depressed and wants to die, you know? Like he he won, but kind of like at at what cost? Like social isolation and yeah, because that's that's when he goes and hides in the rock, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I only found that out a couple of years ago. I was like, wait, this is after that, and it it blew my mind because yeah, he should have been coming into glory at that point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he wasn't, and then it, that's when like you know the 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 tornado came, but you know God was not in the tornado. The this came, but God was not in that. And then like a still small voice spoke to him, and God was in that like still small voice. And I think it told him to take a nap or something like that, doesn't it? Like just yeah. have some food and like rest. It's cool. <laughs> like, 
yeah. which is a message, you know, I think for a lot of us that it's a marathon, not a sprint, maybe that too. Um, yeah. Um, I got, I guess, one more, one more question here for you, and then you can kind of uh, round, round things out as you, as you want to. I guess that would be all right. We've gone all the way up to to Ronald Reagan, um, and and uh, liberation theology and all that stuff. But it's been forty years plus since Reagan, mm-hmm. uh, and we're at an interesting place in the United States with in, in regard to evangelical Christianity, um, Christendom. Yeah, it looks like lots of things are happening on the world stage. It looks like the U.S. is uh, not doing so hot. And it looks like, I guess, I, I don't know what's going on in the States, but it seems like conservative Christians are going to back Trump again. Is that correct? I haven't been paying that much attention, but I okay. think so, yeah. <laughs> um, All right. So so talk about the modern state of Christendom and any closing thoughts you might have. Well, you know, like you, I think the first time I was able to vote was for Bush two, Bush Jr. And I did vote for Bush Jr. Um, I was, you know, actually, I think I was like a week too young to vote for him in, in 2004. But I, I oh, actually, no, I voted for Ron Paul, actually. So, hey, um, in 2008, I think that was my first vote. I voted for Ron Paul, I think. But, um, but Bush, I mean, we think about his, the what he did in Iraq, um, and and then what Obama did uh, in bailing out the banks in the 2008 crisis, um, which was, I mean, I, I don't know how we can call Obama anything near the left because he he did that right wing move, but it to me it's like we could have invested in affordable housing rather than the Iraq War but we spent trillions on the Iraq war. And again, instead of bailing out the banks, we could have invested again. I mean, I think housing is like probably one of the most important things we could have invested in infrastructure, but we didn't, we, we decided to give the money straight to the banks and they do whatever the heck they want with it. And I think in many ways that kind of screwed up our generation. Um, And Bush was certainly the choice of, of evangelicals i don't think i heard there was nobody in my circles um that was advocating anything but bush um and then yeah i mean 81 percent voting for trump um and continuing the the anti-christian things of of reagan and um so i i don't know like i don't have very much but I also think that there was a big shift with our generation. I think many of us came of age, you know, in that 2010, 2011, 2012. And I think we, we started to see that there is a very problematic nature to the ignorance of evangelicalism of our parents' generation. So we are making it better. But the thing is, is that like slaveholding is profitable and Reagan's uh, actions were very profitable. So, of course, people love them um profitable for a certain group of people and they're taking that wealth and they're building castles uh fortresses and things but this and they're blowing up iraq you know they're blowing up 
places all over the world any anything that contests them they're just blowing it up so it's just a bummer because i think for our generation it kind of sucks that that's the way that they're using their wealth is to fortify against awareness you know fortify against learning about their social sins um and they're spending it on more and more interesting ways to have fun i guess i don't know um but yeah so it makes sense trump and stuff i mean trump trump to me is very much like a cyrus mccormick jr so like it makes sense that franklin graham is a lot like the dwight moody and then um and then trump is a lot like the cyrus mccormick jr so to me it is it's the mccormick moody gospel again um and it's just it's a long tradition and it's and it is profitable for a certain group of people um i don't think it's good for the world but um it's it's it is profitable for them and actually blaise pascal i think about this quote all the time unable to fortify justice we justify force justice and force justice and power you know unable to power justice we justify power um or we say profit you know unable to give money to give profit to justice we justify profit and so i think we have a hard time understanding what is power and what is justice and if power just uses the language of justice or like says we give one percent to the planet then we're like cool great profit and and justice but it's not um george whitfield you know unable to build his orphanage in a just way he decided to build his orphanage in an unjust way and we say hey i'm supporting an orphanage but you're doing it unjustly and 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 isn't justice actually just about like social sustainability even um like i think the prophets are saying your profit seeking motives are unsustainable like your kids are going to find out that you got your wealth by terrorizing nicaraguans and there is somehow a still small voice that we hear like the rocks cry out if no one will speak like Jesus, if no one will speak like the prophet, even the rocks will cry out. Like we will find out. Um, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. Remember that line? Like Cain kills Abel, and then God says, "Where is your brother Abel?" And Cain says, "I am not. Am I my brother's keeper? Like am I? I don't know where he is." Meanwhile, Cain killed him, of course. And then God says, the blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. And so I think right now it's the blood of the Native Americans is crying out from the ground. The blood of African Americans is crying from the, crying out from the ground. The blood of women is crying out from the ground. The blood of just poor people in general um, is crying out from the ground. And our parents' generation and evangelicalism in general does not want to hear it. Yeah, I think I think um, uh, our generation, I think in in our lifetime, it's going to come back on us. Um, it just seems like things are are kind of going that way. Um, and you know, I'm 
I'm not uh, into predicting eschatology or anything, but you know, one of the things that I did think was interesting, uh, and it clicked for me when with the 1619 project, I'm like, wait, that's 400 years, uh, 2019. And, you know, biblically speaking, that that 400 years, Egypt, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, okay. And, and things go in 40s and, you know, 40 times or this times 10. So it's mm-hmm. 400's a, a magic number in the Bible when a lot of things kind of come back on you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's that's about when things started to really take a turn in our society. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, for me, 2012 was the year that I was like, I can't really be a part of this anymore. And it was uh, it was right about the same time, like the Mayan calendar said the world was going to end. <laughs> and so it was the world was or, you know, they stopped predicting. I don't know what it was, but it was like December 2012 is like when the Mayan calendar predicted like the end of the world. And now I see like the prophet, the eschatology thing as not so much like the end of the world, but the end of kind of an age or the end of an empire or something like that. And so for me, yeah, like a particular age or dominant system died in 2012. And I hope, you know, something is being reborn. I think something is being reborn. Something is resurrecting. Um, But it's, it's it's a hard process. It's not like... The changing of things is not easy. So, I guess the uh, for you and uh, something for me to remember too is that you know, assuming that we are at least in some ways trying to be true prophets and and avoiding the false prophet route, um, it is encouraging when you look at the Bible that the the uh, or as as Niebuhr said, you know, the wilderness prophets. They do have a harder time, but they also tend to be smaller in number, and things don't seem to go too well for them. And so, I I think um, you know Jesus promised that those who followed him would would bear cross, and I think that's generally indicative of of going the the right route. So, uh, mm-hmm. hopefully, we do find ourselves in that number, uh, the number from your song, but also the number of the the minority true prophets Mm -hmm. and there is something like kind of i don't know i like integrity you know feels good like i i have made the hard decision at least in this sense you know um i've made i think the right decision even though it's been sort of hard and hard for me you know like it's not that it's like I live in San Diego. Like the weather is perfect. You know, I play soccer and on Saturdays and surf on Sundays. You know, I get to eat the best Mexican food in the world. Sorry, Mexico. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So there's good stuff too. There's a lot of good stuff, and that's what I'm trying to remember. All right. Well, I think that's. I mean, that's all the line of questioning that I have for you. Unless there's anything that you want to add that you forgot or think would be a good addition no i think um yeah yeah i think we said we said we said a lot we said a lot was it we're about over two and a half hours yeah almost three yeah (laughs) so all right it's good for me yeah well thanks for taking time out of your day to do that No no problem thank you so much 
That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.